episode 249, how many times have you watched the punch from Saturday night? <laughs> well, there was a few punches thrown on Saturday night. I know there were, but the one punch... You're I'm talking, talking baseball punch. I'm not, I'm not talking about Logan or Jake Paul, okay? <laughs> well, they actually Don't both. even get me started on that. Yeah? Yeah, I, I don't care about Logan or Jake Paul. Yeah. Like, I see them and I have this visceral reaction to, like, run in the opposite direction. So why not watch them get their ass kicked? Eventually well, he thought, will. I thought he knocked some guy out. Yeah, he won, but again, okay, I right. keep watching. That's so not I can... how I wanted to start episode 249 <laughs> with Jake and Logan Paul. What's the guy's name? Jake and... Jake Paul and Logan Paul. Logan Jake's Paul. the one that fought yeah. over the weekend. I, 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 yeah. I, I, okay, if yeah, I yeah. Uh, right. Yes, I have seen the punch. And... You've seen the punch. How many times have you watched? I, I Multiple. swear... I can't stop watching the punch. <laughs> the slow-mo, they've got different angles. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when he went down, and then I love the, the video of him trying to get back to the dugout. He's falling all over the place like he's punch drunk. Sure, and yeah. his teammates are... And, and I think one of the reasons why I find myself watching the punch over and over and over again <laughs> is I don't see... I mean, it's a good punch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's kind of this part of the hand... Maybe just hit him in the right place at the yeah. right time. It doesn't look like a Mike Tyson, George Foreman punch that would have the kind of impact that it seemed to have. I don't think you have to have that kind of punch to have impact. Like if he, Maybe he wasn't ready for it and he just caught I it. I don't know. I know. It he went down like a ton of bricks and I thought, okay, maybe it shocked him. But when he got up... Did you see the video of him trying to get back yeah, to the dugout? I know. He's like on Woozy Street. <laughs> That's right. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. And, and it felt like, I won't say glancing blow, but it almost felt like a glancing blow. I don't know. Maybe you tell me it was a much yeah. better punch than it looked I'm a little better to me, more. but. Yeah, it did? It was the inside of his hand. It yeah, was almost a, an open handed punch. Well, like maybe. a martial arts punch or, you know, something. Was- I can't stop watching it. <laughs> I thought I was the one that loved the sports. Oh, my fights. God. <laughs> I can't. No, no. And it's not the fight. I don't know why I can't stop watching yeah. Watching it. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. I'm consumed by it because there's different angles, different broadcasts, one team's broadcast. Yeah. And then, and then the Cleveland broadcaster, Tom Hamilton, I think is his name. Okay. You know, he broke right into his boxing experience. I mean, right into oh, it. It was unbelievable. Yeah. Down goes Anderson. <laughs> Down goes Anderson. It was unbelievable. Yeah, it, was like, yeah. it was like Howard Cosell doing the 1976 Olympics. So I can't stop watching. It was amazing. Yeah. I don't it know. It's like we don't have as many of those as we used to or no? Because I feel like in the 80s There's and 90s... There's never a punch that lands. Almost never. There was the Batista against Rugnet Odor. Remember the Odor punch of, of Jose? Yeah, I think it's Jose. I don't remember that. You don't remember that. Okay. What, did Batista flip a bat and piss somebody off? Yeah, yeah. something like okay. that. And they ended up getting into blows. And Rugnet Odor hit him with a just a haymaker. And Batista went down. And that's the last time I can recall actually punches landing. I mean, this second baseman, Anderson, he throws the gloves down. Ready to go. The umpire goes from baseball umpire to boxing umpire. Did you watch the umpire's reaction? (laughs) He went right into his Mills Lane imitation. Like he was ready to referee the fight. Back it up, back it up, back it up, boys. It was crazy. It was crazy. Do we know why he was so pissed off? Like what? Has it come out why he was so mad? Well, apparently... Jose Ramirez of the Indians said after the game through an interpreter. Guardians, but yes. Did I say the Indians? You sorry. Did. Guardians, right. I apologize. Sorry, don't write the notes, please. 40 Richard. years of calling them one thing. It's going to be tough. It's I'm like sorry. They, like Dennis Miller said, it's, it's like they changed the rules of blackjack to 22, babe. I need a little time here, okay? <laughs> you always have. I love that. You always have the, uh, the stand-up routine. <laughs> 
Ramirez said after the game through an interpreter that Anderson doesn't respect the game. People have complained about him all year. He oh, does little okay. things like when he slides into guys at second base, he goes into their knees and he oh. does. He, according to Ramirez, when he tagged him on that particular play, he tagged him extra hard. Ramirez says, I wasn't getting up to fight. I had words for him to start respecting the game. And he said to me, let's go. So, so I just, get up. Yeah. So I got up and okay. and I had to protect myself. Yeah. He was already kind of on level red when he stood up. I mean, kind of on edge and on guard from the But past, the first so. two punches came from Anderson. <laughs> God, now I need to and go they watch just, it. And they just missed. <laughs> yeah. The first two punches were, were pretty big haymakers from Anderson. And he just ducked and got out of the way and then came up from wherever Jeez. he came up from. And it was lights out. Getting punched in the face sucks. It's not good. And Anderson's going to hear that I about know. that for the rest of his life. Forget career. Right. Rest of his life. I mean, there's been video that's making the rounds on social media of other games where players like before the game, you can see them explaining to the other player what happened oh, in the game. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, when you, when you hear the name Robin Ventura. Oh, yeah. I mean, what do you think of? When I think of Batista, Joey Bats. Yeah, yeah. I think of Rugnet Odor hitting him with a haymaker. Yes. That's sad, man. It's like. That's all. He won't be able to shake it. It'll be attached to Anderson yeah. for the rest of his career and probably life. Yep. I kind of miss the, the brawls, though. I feel like they don't have them as much as they used to. They don't. But even when they do, you never see a punch land like that. It's a it's rugby all, match. It's just a bunch of yeah, bodies yeah, yeah, and yeah. people pushing and shoving. Wrestling and maybe and some punches are thrown yeah they never they never reach home they never get this one yeah he ate that one <laughs> he ate that punch i can't stop watching yeah it's amazing episode 249 ladies and gentlemen welcome mitch unfiltered episode 249 west guilford ontario hello really we're up in canada for area code oh, 249 yes interesting okay. do you know west Gil midland ontario stainer ontario algoma mills ontario Area code 249. Feels like he just named three minor league hockey teams. I did. I probably <laughs> he did. He probably did, yes. I probably did. It's available on all podcast platforms, ladies and gentlemen. You know that. You know that you can subscribe and rate us for free on the Apple Podcast. We need five-star ratings, please. Yep. Go to the rating section of your Apple Podcast app and do so. You know you can become a Mitch Unfiltered patron. At $5 a month and have access to all of our shorter weekday shows. So right now, we are in the season of Puffery with Danny O'Neill, Shooting the Shit with Slickhawk, and the Mariners Note Table. Those are each once-a-week short shows that are available for patrons. Here's what's coming, Hot Shot Scott. Okay. Football season. It is, turns out. I've got Brady and Joe and the Seahawks Note Table warming up. I've got Randy Mueller, hopefully, warming up. He's okay. giving me a little bit of a hard time, but hopefully I got Randy Mueller's weekly show back on, on deck. I'm looking at a Washington Huskies football no table. Wow, great. I'm looking at bringing back, you know, we did the Kraken no table during the playoffs. I'm yep. thinking about bringing that back at the beginning of the season. So an assortment, yeah, a smorgasbord, of shorter shows, weekly shows. It might get up to five, six, seven, all for $5 a month. Now, I ask that people become patrons because 
each of their $5 donations per month help me pay all of these guys. Yeah. I don't pay them a lot, but I pay all of them a stipend. All of the regular guests, not the... Boy, you're not kidding. <laughs> Go ahead, I'm listening. Not the one-off guests, but yeah. all these guys that... And none of them really ask for it, but all these yeah. guys who appear on our shows for patrons and for non-patrons like once a week, I try to throw them a couple of bucks yeah. each one of them. But we're up to like... 11, 12, 13 guys right now. Adds okay, up. So it yeah. adds up. So to become a Mitch Unfiltered patron, it's only $5 a month. Go to MitchUnfiltered.com and you'll have access to not only all of this stuff that I'm talking about, but as soon as you become a patron, you have access to everything we've ever done. Yep. It's all right there. I don't think you have any problems going back in time and listening to whatever you, you want. You can just keep scrolling forever. Yes. And each of these shows... For all of you that complain about the Monday length of the show, the free show on Mondays, mm -hmm. each of these shows are about 20 to 30 minutes. So they're a little snackable bite. content. Snackable. Yeah, I don't understand that. I kind of like it, though. I think it's good. I don't have any idea. <laughs> okay, fine. I have, I have absolutely no doubt. <laughs> Guests on this episode 249. Okay. It's a good one, I think. I don't know that you'll remember the name Travis Snyder. Yes. No. See, I was wondering to myself whether you would remember because there would be one reason that you would remember, but it wouldn't be the reason that everybody else would remember. Oh, okay. If that made any kind of, that make any kind of sense what I just said? Yes. So Travis Snyder was a great little league baseball player. Okay. In Mill Creek, Linwood area. Okay. Doing anything for you yet? Not yet. Not no. yet. Okay. He then became an exceptional. His team did not make it to the Little League World Series Mill Creek. They got beat in San Bernardino. Sure. You know San Bernardino. That, that must have sucked losing in San Bernardino. Now go ahead. I'm listening. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know what that feels like, but I'm sure it sucked. You just hold on to that, will you? Go on. The rest of your life, you just hold on to that. <laughs> I will. Believe me. He then became a really, really terrific high school baseball player at Jackson High School okay. in Mill Creek. So good that after his senior year of high school, he was the 15th overall first-round pick of the Toronto Blue Jays. Wow. Nothing still yet? Impressive. Travis Snyder? No. no, no. He was supposed to be, like, it. Okay. The thing. When he was drafted, he went through the Toronto Blue Jays farm system. Remember, he's 18. He's high school. Sure. He goes through the Blue Jays farm system as an 18-year-old like that. Normally, it takes, what, five, six years for a high schooler, maybe two or three years for a college guy? Yeah. He goes through them in, like, two years. Wow. He's like the home run derby champion of double-A. Yeah, right. He's just Jeez. lighting it all on fire. He is at Yankee Stadium at 20, starting for the Toronto Blue Jays Unreal. as the youngest position player in the entire Major League Baseball. That's how fast he went through the minor leagues. Okay. He was going to be... All-star every year, this great hitter, outfielder, what have you. It didn't really work out for him. He played, um, as it turns out, I think six, 14 or 16 professional seasons. He was in the big leagues for maybe, maybe 12 years, 10 or 12 years. Okay. Played for the Blue Jays, got traded at the trade deadline while he was in Seattle playing for his home hometown fans yeah. at Safeco Field as a member of the Blue Jays on that August 1st trading deadline. He got told, we're trading into the Pittsburgh Pirates. And so he played on different teams. He was this superstar to be that never quite made it. And then he's moved back to Seattle now. He's out of baseball. He's got a family. Mm -hmm. 
On the day of the trading deadline last week, he wrote a series of tweets that were very touching about the day he got traded and how his career maybe never lived up to what everybody asked and how difficult it was for him at age 17 and 18 and always reading and believing his clippings that he's the greatest, he's the Mm. greatest, he's the greatest. So I reached out to him. I had not interviewed him since he was in high school at Jackson High School in Mill Creek. I didn't know whether he would remember me. He did, immediately accepted And so we did 30 minutes, 25, 30 minutes that I think people are really going to enjoy. And it's going to resonate with a lot of people about the ups and downs of Travis Snyder's career as a big leaguer. What year did he graduate from Jackson? I'm just kind of curious when you interviewed him (sighs) last time, like eight, 16 years ago, 2006. Oh, okay. 2006. That'd be 17 years ago. Wow. He would have been 18. So he's 35 years okay. old. Got three kids. Right. Now they're going through Little League oh, now. <laughs> yeah. And so now it all comes full it's circle. It's a different life for him right now. Gotcha. Different That's life. amazing. I can't wait to hear. He's really honest and transparent about his feelings and mm. about all the stuff he messed up and that he wishes he could do over again and mm. all of that stuff. Very, very good. Very, very good 25, 30 minutes with Travis Snyder, the former superstar for Jackson High School and big leaguer with the Toronto Blue Jays and the Pittsburgh Pirates and the like. Okay, that's that's guest number one. Guest number two, Christian Capel, who is one of the top writers, reporters on the Washington Huskies for the last many years. <laughs> we got to talk yeah. Pac-12 and what happened over the last 72 90 hours, whatever it is, 100 hours weird. in the Pac-12. What, what are they down to four time. now? Yeah, Pac-4? down to four. Sure, Pac-4. yeah. yeah. Yep, yep. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Christian Capel, who has been on the ground level watching this, reporting on this. He's got some inside scoop for you. What happened? Why did it happen? Did they have any choice, Oregon and Washington, for leaving for the Big Ten? And maybe some educated guesses on how the new Big Ten's going to be laid out, yeah. divisions and all that stuff, scheduling, who they're going to play every year. It's crazy. We'll talk a lot about that in segment number one. And then uh, guest number three is a guy by the name of Brian Nemhauser. I thought it might be fun to shine the light on some of the non-traditional local sports coverage of the Seahawks. So Brian Nemhauser has become over the last many years one of the most popular Seahawks bloggers. Do you know what a, do you even know what a blogger oh, is? Oh, sure. I'm big in the blogger. I don't sphere. know what a blogger is. No. I don't really know what a blogger is. But he's got this huge following. He does a podcast. Yeah. He does a YouTube thing. He writes on the Seahawks. This is going on for years and years and I'm years. I'm familiar with him, yeah. Oh, you are? Of course. I know everything about everything. No, you, I, I totally know the name. You yeah. don't know the name. What, Twitter? Yeah. Yeah. I've seen I know Twitter. Twitter. I, I'm not asking if you know Twitter. <laughs> it's actually called X, I think, now. But. Yes. Brian Nemhauser? Yeah. You know the I name? I know the name, yes. From Seahawks tweets and people yeah. retweeting it. Hawk him. Blogger, he goes by. Yeah, Hawk Blogger. Really? I do know that, yes. Hard to believe that you know Brian Nemhauser, but not Travis Snyder. <laughs> really? It is? Yeah, one guy was supposed to be Babe Ruth, <laughs> and the other guy is a is a blogger. And you know the blogger, but not yeah. the guy that was supposed to be Babe Ruth from well, Mill Creek, Washington. He's a blogger for a team I root for, so it's not that weird, I don't think. But you don't pay attention to the Seahawks. Yeah, that's true, I don't. What, what are you talking about? <laughs> 14, you saw fall up all over it, but Seahawks, I don't know. Who knows? Anyway, three interviews on this episode, 249. So tons to talk about as we begin segment one, the Pac-12, Washington, Oregon, Big Ten, Mariners still winning, D. Eskridge still losing, 
all presented by Zeke's Pizza. All the great things going on over there at Zeke's from expansion all the way to Idaho, soon down to Portland, to their revamped mobile app, which makes home delivery as simple as ever. Download and give it a try. Let me know how it works. Zeke's Pizza homegrown in the Northwest. John Waterstrat, Fireside Home Solutions. Fall and winter will be here before you know it. Start considering replacing that beaten up fireplace or add one outside like we did. Check out the newly remodeled Bellevue flagship location, FiresideHomeSolutions.com. The Woodenville Office of Cross Country Mortgage, Jordan Flowers, whatever you do. Don't be scared away from looking to buy or sell a home in the Northwest or anywhere else for that matter. This is where the cream rises to the top in the mortgage industry. And I trust Jordan Flowers and his team more than anybody else. Super creative with solutions that you're not even dreaming about. And it costs nothing but a seven-minute conversation with him on the phone. 425-890-2957. Daniel's Broiler. August got here quickly, didn't it? Still some great weather ahead to celebrate special occasions at Daniel's Broiler and enjoy their great outside dining options like on the deck at Leshy, the Sea Plains at South Lake Union, overlooking the world, as I say, at Bellevue Place, danielsbroiler.com. An evergreen golf call, tax advisors, certified financial planners, experienced portfolio managers working together to bring retirement planning taxes and investments under one roof, evergreengk.com. More than just a financial advisor, Evergreen is everything wealth. Episode 249 of Mitch Unfiltered begins right now. Unfiltered. If you sell Teo Hernandez, if you sell Paul Seawall or Tom Murphy, are you kind of sending the message to the fans? Yeah. We raise our hands. Mercy. Unfiltered. We are so stacked at starting pitchers with Brian Wu coming and Bryce Miller coming yeah. and Emerson Hancock coming. Let's take a little of our pitchers, a little of our strength, yeah. and help our weakness. Mitch is unfiltered. And with that, Hot Shot Scott, episode 249 is underway. If you hear the Blue Angels, I apologize. I can do nothing. I can't radio to them to (laughs) tell them to cut it up. Turn it down. Yeah, cut it out. I'm trying to do a podcast. People are trying to get some sleep around here. You know, Bill Muncy was an amazing racer (laughs) and even better promoter of the sport. That's all I think about when I see the Blue Angels is the hydros and Pato Day, man. Did you have the hydros on at all? Like, do you is that even on TV anymore? I or? have no idea. I yeah. wouldn't even look for it. <laughs> I, I was there one time with Brian oh, Wheeler. God, this story again. I I'm not telling you the story. The oh my god! <laughs> Nightmare. I, I walked out of there and I went right to management and I said, "I'm done. <laughs> That's it. If you ever ask me to do this again, I'm done." See, fail. That was that was the end of that. But one of my claim to fames, I'll have you know about the aforementioned Pato Day. Okay. I don't know whether you were with us or not. I can't remember the time frame, but early in my time on KJR, Pat O'Day was actually canned. Yes. From the broadcast. From the broadcast. That's right. He was, he was yeah. canned from like, I don't know, Channel 7, Channel 4. They decided to go in a different direction. They weren't going to use Pat O'Day anymore. People were outraged. And so I flamed the fire on the show, yeah. got him on the show, Gave the phone number out to like the news director of the TV station. I was there. 
So you were with Silver me? Silver Fox, we called him, right? We called him the Silver Fox, yeah. and we just... We implored every listener, even if you didn't give a shit about Seafair, yeah, yeah. to call the news. And they, we flooded their lines with all eight of our listeners. <laughs> right. I think we got eight people to call 12 times each. So yeah. they got 96 calls. Whatever I did, the next day or two days later, a retraction from the TV station, Silver Fox, Pat O'Day will continue <laughs> as the voice. Yeah, it's great. God. I think you might have come in studio at the end at one point. Did we have him in studio? To oh, talk I used about to have him in studio. After that, I was like his favorite guy. He told a lot of people they were his favorite guy. Yeah. <laughs> but I was truly one of his you favorite were. guys. He got to do what he wanted to do. We got to love him. And then he would come into studio and we would say we would do these segments called Ask the Silver Fox. Oh, okay. Where people would call in I think with, I remember that. with any topic and he knew everything about everything. I I'm remember sure. when somebody called in about peeing in the shower. <laughs> and he went on God. this like he went on this like 12 minute run on the show live about how it helps athletes foot and funguses on. I mean, he, it was, and he didn't, wow. he didn't miss a word. It was just, <laughs> it was the most beautiful thing. Yeah. And then we had him do scouting reports on the bigger dance contestants. We had him come in yeah. and he would do the bios. Oh, great. Jennifer Aniston. And he'd go through the whole thing. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. No we, had a great, little, but. <laughs> we had a great relationship. He's, yeah. He was the best professional broadcaster legend. He's in the rock and roll hall of fame for God's sake. Yes, he is pretty amazing. He had great stories. Oh. Didn't Oh, the the best stories ever. I can't remember. I I remember him telling me a story about Frank Sinatra coming to Seattle, oh, owning KJR. Yep, yep. They were preparing all day for Sinatra. He's coming to the station. That's right. They bought new furniture. Yes. They like spruce new the place carpet. Up. Everyone's yeah. on edge. Like yes. holy shit, Sinatra's, Sinatra's coming, coming to the station. He opens up the plane, sees the weather, has a cocktail <laughs> in his hand. He goes, "Let's get the hell out of here." <laughs> Back to Florida or California or wherever the hell they're going. I love that story. Uh, he just randomly told me one time out of the blue that he had oh, those young boys from The Who were uh, in town and I fed them KFC in my backyard before the show. And he's got pictures to prove all of it. He's got receipts on all of it. Yeah. He's not a shit talker. He was I, well, there at the beginning of... He was there at the beginning of rock and roll. There's no though. question yeah. that he's got great stories. Maybe they get embellished. A or little embellishment. Or I've maybe. seen a picture of... Uh, Roger Daltrey sitting in his fucking backyard eating chicken. <laughs> like, really? You had the who and you're in? I can't. He called him young guys. Oh, Meanwhile, Daltrey's yeah. like 75 now. You know, but yeah, he's the best. Yeah. When I saw the Blue Angels flying to your house, I you thought of Pat O'Day. Yeah. Pat O'Day. Yeah. So two and a half stories that we should mention in segment one of episode 249. Two and a half stories. The half story being. The D. Eskridge era. How's that going oh for you? Oh my gosh. Are we allowed to just cut him, or how does that work? Well, I don't think that they're going to cut him. I didn't say they're going to. I'm saying, can we? Yeah. I, can you cut a guy who's been suspended? I, I think you can. <laughs> I don't know. Absolutely. I think you can. I don't know the rules on I mean, that. enough already, right? Oh. Can't take it. I mean, when he is healthy, does he look like amazing? Like, no. Sometimes you understand why they hang on to someone because you, you know the upside no. is crazy good. But I mean, come on. Just it's not working out. Sometimes you make a mistake in life and you just got to cut your losses, right? He got suspended for six games for violating the personal conduct policy. And this is the half story. We should not spend a lot of time on this because D. Eskridge, let's face it, he was going to be the fourth wide receiver on this team at best. Yeah. They've got the top two, mm -hmm. and then they got the guy from Ohio State. Yep. Okay. Those were going to be the three. This guy was going to be the number four guy and maybe get hurt in the first game like he always got hurt yeah. to spend a lot of time on D. Eskridge. But I will ask this, and it's not as much about D. Eskridge. He got suspended six games, and we all went, what? 
violating the personal conduct policy? What was he doing? Gambling on football? Mm-hmm. Because there's been a string of <laughs> there's been a string of uh, yes, suspensions and so forth. No, he got suspended for a domestic violence arrest with the mother of his child in February. And my question is, how in 2023 does an NFL football player get arrested on a domestic violence steal and no one knows? Doesn't all this stuff come out on? Doesn't TMZ like have the have the footage of the of the assault or of the incident? It's crazy. Don't you have to actually play in the NFL to have name recognition? No, I, no one knows who the hell he is. DS maybe that doesn't pop off any list. Now, if it was I DK Metcalf, that name you'd recognize. D. Eskridge. Really? I, maybe. Maybe no one even knew who he was. God. He's not enormous. He doesn't stand no, out. No, he I doesn't. I did see DK a few days ago, and oh, I got a new appreciation. I saw him at Newcastle a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. I mean, if if you had a full head of steam and he just stood there and didn't move and you tried to tackle him, it would be a chore. Now, let's not forget he's the fastest player in the NFL. <laughs> one of. Holy one shit. One of, definitely. Tackling that guy. Anyway, and by the way, I loved how... Like a, a week or two ago, D. Eskridge looks great in training oh, no. camp. <laughs> that routine again? Oh, yeah. yeah. Faster than he's oh, ever looked. Really? Oh. oh, he's making catches against the oh. first string corners. Going to be they, a career year? Nobody can cover him. Oh, oh wow. Nobody I can't wait can to cover see. him when when's they're not wearing play? pads. Oh, when's he going to play? Yeah. yeah, without wearing pads. Everyone looks great in T-shirt and shorts, don't they? Yeah, we got all that about him. And yeah. The good news is he hopefully can't get hurt during those six games. He can find a way oh, to get hurt. Oh, he can. Oh, yeah. oh, okay. He slipped down Certain the stairs Certain guys can something. get hurt. Yeah. Not playing football. So that's the half a story. Okay. The two full stories are obvious. Yeah. The Mariners sweep the Angels in Anaheim. And not, not a three-game sweep. <laughs> the, the Mariners sweep the Angels in Anaheim. They have now won five consecutive series. I remember vividly a Friday night game against the Tampa Bay Rays here. Okay. The Mariners were going bad at that point. The Rays were like the best team in the American League. And in the first game of... The series on a Friday night, they pitched Shane McClanahan, who's their ace. Cy Young candidate, starter in the All-Star game, or one of the starters in the All-Star game. And the Mariners got four runs on him early in the game. Okay. Tampa responded by scoring the next 12. (laughs) And Mike Ford had to pitch. They had position players pitching and... The Mariners lost 12-4 to after scoring four early runs, and they dropped on that Friday night, Scott. They dropped the 38-42. and I went back and I looked at it. Yeah. 38-42 and after they lost 12-4 to to the Rays. They are now 60-52. and So that would be 22-10 and yeah. since that Friday night against the Rays, yeah. which is the best record in Major League Baseball since. And so now everybody who has been asking, can't they do what they did last year? Can't they do what they did last? They're doing what they did last. All of us who said, come on, would you stop? Right. Would you stop? That was a once in a a 10-year thing. They're not going to turn around and do everybody who kept on it. Yeah, they're doing what they did last year. I don't know if they're going to make it. I don't know if they're going to win 14 in a row like they did last year before the All-Star break. But essentially, they are now doing Turned it around, and yep. they're doing what they did last year. Once they got rid of the deadweight Kelnick, they went on yeah. a tear. Oh God, he's sitting <laughs> around with a boot on. <laughs> and that's where they went on their tear, it seems like. It did. Yeah, right, right around the time oh, he got. Oh, God, how does he feel about it? I know. It? He's not a part of it. Nope. He's been written off. Not a part of it, but yeah, as soon as they get that dead weight gone, they go, everyone just starts playing oh better. Oh, God. So weird, that timing. I know it's a coincidence, but. Or is it? I don't know. The guy no, who's filling in for him is pretty good, though. It's a coincidence. 
It is a coincidence. They're now two and a half back of the wild card, and they have nobody to jump except for one wild card team. Remember, we used to say, oh, they're five and a half back of the wild card, but the problem is they've got to leapfrog four different right. teams. They all have to get cold. No, yeah. now they're the first team out. Just chasing the Blue they're the, Jays? They're, they're number one on the wait list right wow. now, and Amazing. they can't figure out a way to lose a game. I mean, it's unbelievable. They find they are winning games with Cade Marlowe grand slams. <laughs> that was awesome. They're winning games with fluky <laughs> ground rule doubles. Yeah. They're winning games with uh, Julio on Sunday getting thrown out at third because he came off the bag and they still find a way. They're, they're winning games with Taylor Saucedo or Saucedo or whatever Sauce, yeah. It's cra- they, they, His first career save comes on a. They are now at the point where if they went out and tried to lose a game, they can't lose one. <laughs> Calm down. I was driving this is in. Crazy. I was listening. I was driving in. And whoever the batter was up for the Angels at the time, he yeah. came over from Colorado. They said, "Yeah, you know, he had 11 home runs with Prone? I think so. Yeah. 11 home runs with Colorado. He's yet to homer for the Angels. I remember thinking, you did it. You <laughs> ju- and I don't even believe in jinxes. I just thought you did it. You just screwed the Mariners, and even the jinx didn't work." Well, I thought in the uh, if you're talking about Sunday's game, I thought in the top of the tenth, when Suarez comes through with the hit, awesome. And my God, that guy doesn't get many hits, but when he gets one, yeah, they seem memorable. to be all big ones. But yeah. he could go five games without getting a hit. <laughs> I and thought that way last through. year too, though. Then right? he comes through and he throws the bat and looks at the dugout Love like him. I'm the man, right? Love him. But I thought when he scored the run on that hit and Julio pulls almost oh. like a little league mistake, you always slide into the base. He said he got pushed off the base. You watch it, he didn't get pushed off the base. Okay. What happened was he didn't slide, he went into the base standing, and then he got tied up with the guy on third trying to tag him. Their legs got caught up a little bit, okay. and he came off the bag like that much. And the guy had his glove on him. Just in case he came off the bat, yeah. and when he did, he was out. That's what you teach little leaguers. Just, just keep slide. Your mid on. I know. Just slide. And when that happened, honest to God, the you pessimistic Mitch Levy <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> thought, "Okay, this is exactly the right. way." Right. Not only are they now going to lose this game, they're going to lose like seven of the next eight. Right. Because and we're going to circle their superstar young player not slide. I would. I had the whole thing figured out. Yeah. They win all four against the Angels, and so they are smoking red hot, and we have something to cheer for over the next couple of months so that's one of the big stories and then the pac-12 your beloved pac-12 yes you were born in what year 1974 all you've done is love all your life you're some pac-12 football might have been pac-10 pac pac-8 am i old enough for pac-8 i hope Uh, i know i don't think you are okay me and sunny six killer aren't the same age pac-10 football pac-10 yeah sure and in like 24 hours on like thursday and friday crazy if you're following it on social media you're kind of getting the the minute-by-minute minute live updates from all these people covering it. Boom, boom, boom. Your beloved Huskies, the Oregon Ducks, are now in the Big Ten. How do you feel about that? I need to listen to the interview because I have a lot of questions about this. I hope I answered a lot of the questions with uh, the help of Christian Cable. Yeah. Part of me sad, of course. It yeah. feels weird, but I'm, yeah. I'm excited for the program. I mean, to be in the Big Ten with Ohio State and Michigan, and feels like you're, all right, we got some, some big, I mean, and then USC and UCLA and yep. Oregon. It feels yeah. like you got some big dogs now. Wow. I'm excited. They've I'm ex- had some big dogs for a few years now. Who's that? The Big Ten. I think they've got no, some but, good No, but bringing in all these other Pac-12 USC, teams USC, UCLA, Washington, Oregon. Now, now we're talking. Mean, Rutgers, for, you can you can. Is it better down, than the but. SEC? It might be better than the SEC now, top to bottom. Actually, the bottom teams are probably not. The Rutgers and the Maryland's of the world are probably not yeah. as good as the whoever the and SEC doormats The best are. Big Ten schools aren't as good as the best... SEC schools, but I think... But it's deeper. It's deeper, right. That's a better way to put it. 
It's Maybe crazy. It's 18 teams. Did you see all the hate being spewed at Washington? On the uh, Wazoo's well, behalf? Well, or? I think it's more than just Wazoo. There's just a lot of... There were a lot of people on social media hating on Oregon and Washington's decision to, to flee the conference. That they gave up and they left the other four teams... High and dry, and they shouldn't have done that. It but, was a it was a bad move. Was that hatred for every other team that left, or yeah, I think so. Okay, not just pointed at Washington. I, mean, why are I they don't know what Washington and Oregon was to do. Well, right. What are they going to? You'll do? hear me say with Christian Capel that this feels a little like the hate that I'm reading feels a little like the whole Alex Rodriguez thing when he left the Seattle Mariners for 252 million. Interesting. Yeah, we all just. How dare you? We just killed him. Yeah. I remember putting his answer machine on my on the show. We, we, we were calling him on the show. Oh, calling his house? And then we were throwing dollar bills, Monopoly dollar bills when he came back. with oh, the. I, I, I was mean, there. Yeah, the it, money we, was floating down. And, and, and what was I saying at the time? And I say now, how many of the people hating on Alex Rodriguez at that time, yeah. honestly, genuinely, <laughs> on a polygraph, would have not made the exact same decision of that he course. did. Of course. Every single one of us. Of course. We were killing him. If but I remember correctly, it wasn't it, even close, right? The, it was the like numbers? 90 million. The right. Mariners offered like 80 to 90 million. Yeah. I remember having, this true story, I remember having Chuck Armstrong and Howard Lincoln. Oh, no. When this all went down, they were in Hawaii vacationing. I don't even know why they're <laughs> vacationing together. I think they were vacationing. And they came on the morning show together. Wow. And I remember just pushing him up against the wall. How much? How much was the offer? How close did you get? And I think we came away from that whole experience thinking that the Mariners offered like certainly less than 100 million. So it was like 80 or 90 Jeez. million. And he got 252 million yeah. guaranteed. We're killing him. And all of us would have done exactly the same thing. Yeah, I know. Silly. Right? Yeah. No, not silly, but we just would. No, it's Th silly to, to rip the guy when we all would have done so, it. So now I, I feel that way on Thursday and Friday when I'm yeah. reading the vitriol. Yeah. How dare Washington and Oregon lead? Now you see why. You see that the deal that was on the table from them from was like from Apple TV. There was no mainstream television. Right. It was going to be like... $20 million a team if they got a number of subscribers to subscribe to Apple TV. I mean, it was just a, it was a shit-ass deal. It was right. a terrible deal. The Big Ten come along and say, oh, here's $30 million guaranteed with our huge TV package yeah. to start. You get $1 million more each year, so you get 31 32 33 34 mm -hmm. for this TV deal. And then you get a full share, because the other teams are getting 60 a full share of the next one, which will be like... $75 million right. a year. I know there's a lot of people whose ass is chapped over the decision, mad about Washington bolting and leaving Washington State, and yeah. how dare they. I know there's a lot of people that are throwing haymakers at, at Washington, but I ask every one of them, if you were placed in the president of Washington's shoes and you had to make a decision, they're already losing money, hand over fist, these athletic departments, and the Big Ten offers you this. And the Pac-12, the dude at the Pac-12, George Klyovkov, yeah, he was handed a very bad hand of poker from Larry Scott, the guy before him. But there's been a year since USC and UCLA went to Big Ten. Has it been a year, really? It's been a year. They, they announced it like a week or two before the regular season last year. Wow. I think right about now. I think it's right about now. Okay. He's had a year to come back to them and say, we've got this. Here's a big package. Right. 
they haven't been able to do it. It always felt like the Pac-12 was sort of the stepbrother in a way. Like, you know, some people could get the Pac-12 network. Other people couldn't. They couldn't come up to a deal. Well, you're with talking it. about the Pac-12 network. I'm just saying, yeah. but, but that's part of the Pac-12. Oh, just oh, like yeah. it, it always a, just felt it like. It was a disaster. It always felt that was that Larry way. Scott. Yeah, yeah, it was a disaster. Right. So that's, it's like, that's who's part surprised? of the problem. Yeah, that's one of the big elements of the problem. Yeah. I feel bad about it in a lot of ways. I'm not as tied to the Pac-12 as you are because I didn't grow up with the Pac-12. I feel kind of bad about it because what about the the Thursday night Rutgers Washington volleyball matchup? Yeah. I mean these teams they fly commercial. Let's talk about the Thursday night Rutgers Rutgers Oregon conference volleyball matchup. Tell me how Rutgers team is getting to Eugene, how long it's going to take for Rutgers to get to Eugene, Oregon, flying commercial yeah. to play in a Thursday night volleyball when they're trying to go to school. For the non-revenue yeah. producing sports yeah. teams, the softball teams, the baseball teams, right. soccer, baseball, at least they come for three days, right? They play three games. Softball, I think, does too. Softball two or, does too. Two or three games. Soccer? I think it's one game. Yeah. You got to fly from College Park, Maryland to <laughs> Eugene, Oregon to play a two-hour soccer, a, th- a two-and-a-half-hour soccer, one game? Yeah. Eugene sort of sucks, but you know, LA will be easier. Seattle Seattle will be be easy. easy. It's a couple extra hours. Easy, easier. It's a couple extra hours. I mean, if you you know, usually you fly to Arizona, that's two and a half. Now you're flying five. I mean, they'll be fine. I'm not that worried about the travel. You don't seem at all saddened by the the end of the traditional Pac-12. But like I said, it it, doesn't bother you that much. But the past past few years, it always just felt kind of janky. Yeah, so like just it's everything you ready about for, it. Yeah, it's, it's you like, ready for this. It didn't yeah. feel like it was a well-oiled machine that everyone was in love with and right. got ripped out from underneath me. It just right. kind of felt inevitable for some reason. Yeah, Pac-12 just never, just never felt like it was playing with the big boys. I don't know why. I'll talk to Christian Capel about what I'm gonna bring up now. How do you do it? I was yeah. If I'm you're going. the Big Ten, let's go back to football. How do you do it? How do you determine a conference champion? Hmm. You now have what, 16, 18? 18, yeah. 18 teams. Are you really going to go two divisions of nine? And then most of the teams are not going to play most of the other teams yeah. each year. And then you're going to take two teams who probably didn't play half of the conference and put them in a conference championship game. How are you going to do it? I brought up on Twitter, I got skewered a little bit, but I, I brought up on Twitter that I feel like with 18 teams, You might have to go to a two-week, four-team playoff. I know that sounds crazy to determine the Big Ten champs. Yeah. Do we really have to be with Oregon, USC, and UCLA? Is it that necessary? I mean, why why can't we just see just mix it up? No, I think you should. I think you want that. I just want to mix it up. Don't you want to play Oregon, UCLA, and USC every year? Like I've done that enough. No, you haven't. For years, you haven't been playing USC and UCLA. I want you Oregon. Go, you've been going years without playing USC and UCLA for the last 10 years. Well, how about the last 40 is what I'm saying. I've played those teams enough. Like I think for travel and for rivalries and for regionality, I think Washington, USC, UCLA, and Oregon have to be in the same mm. division, and they have to play I every don't year. I with that. Well, that's three games, and those are three fantastic games. Yeah, but how would, wouldn't you love USC? And now you got six more. USC, Michigan, or USC, Ohio State. Yeah, you're going to awesome. get that. You're going to get that. Penn State, Oregon with that's, Kajana Carter. If you Scott, if you play nine or ten conference games, that's only three. You've got six more coming. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot of teams, though. Like you said, you're not going to play... 
half Maybe the I'm schools. wrong, but I I, I, I got to believe it's a foregone conclusion. You might be right. Teams that are it, the it, same division. Yeah, you're probably right, any, but. All right. Look, we're either in the conference or we aren't. Why are we now splitting it up into like, well, you, these guys should stay together. Do you want the Apple Cup to continue? Yes. I think are I, you okay with it being like the first game of the year in no, September? No, I'm not, actually. I, in, the Apple in, Cup, in beautiful, warm, maybe even weird. hot temperatures in, in Seattle and in Pullman. Pullman, for sure, would be Yeah, warm. yeah. No, it, it should be like, like Notre Dame, USC. Just every year it happens, no matter who is where. So, yes, I would love for that to continue. I think it should. I think the Civil War should continue. Why not? Yeah, I do too. Yeah? Yeah, I do too. So help me understand. I don't care that much, but I do too. What's Bill Walton going to do now? The Conference of Champions. (laughs) I mean, it's over for him. What's he going to do? They better have him on basketball What is basketball going to be like? I know. I know. Crazy. It's all just crazy. So weird. So when does this all kick off? Next year. Next year for sure. One year from right now, we'll be getting ready for the, the Big Ten football schedule. Wait till that schedule comes out. Unfortunately, it happens after Penix is gone, right. after the wide receivers are gone. <laughs> That's true. God damn it. One year too late. <laughs> after all these guys are gone, hopefully right. Kalen DeBoer can keep this thing oh. rolling and revved up. But this would have been a good year to start. No kidding. Maybe you'd say no. Maybe this is a good year for Washington to be playing the Pac-12 schools. But Penix and Indiana? That would have been fun, right? Yeah. I mean, come on. All right, three interviews. I think you'll really like the Travis Snyder interview. Plus, you'll get all your answers from Christian Capel and Seahawks talk. They played a mock scrimmage. They lost about three guys to injury in the mock scrimmage. (laughs) And then we'll do other stuff. It's been a while since my friend and Mitch Unfiltered partner, John Waterstrat, joined us. And there's good reason. He's been busy. An exciting major facelift to some of the fireside showrooms. How are you, J-Dub? I'm doing great, Mitch. Thanks for having me back. And yes, it, it has been busy. And we're excited to unveil some new, cool new projects. We have a new sales director that came along. And he's been putting his footprint on the showrooms. And we're excited about what he's doing. We're going to put some new fireplaces you've never seen before and then we're redoing our whole outdoor kitchen area wow the fantastic flagship bellevue location was already beautiful so i can't wait to drop by and see it so what's the rumor about some big project you're coming up some enormous fireplace that you guys are ready to install yes our commercial department's doing a fantastic job and as we've talked about before we can do almost anything in fireplaces and custom fireplaces are getting bigger and bigger and we're hoping to uh unveil the one of the largest fireplaces in North America. It's going to be pretty exciting stuff. How big? Roughly 25 feet. And you're not going to tell us where it is, but we'll be able to see it sometime? We'll be able to see it and we'll talk about it. Yeah, it'll be exciting. Oh, that's going to be fun. So now that we've reached, let's call it the off-season for fireplace use, it's actually, you and I talk about this, one of the better times of the year to start the process of redoing the fireplaces in your home or, like you guys did for us, an outdoor unit. Yes, I mean, when the weather gets nice out there things go a little bit faster so we're not fighting the weather whether we have to extract a fireplace put a new one in and then again outside as well when you're out there we can get something done pretty quickly for you right now and so when you're looking at the off season you have a schedule and and you want to get something done quickly it's the best time to do it yeah whether it's fireplaces or garage doors begin your search at firesidehomesolutions.com i'll bet you'll end your search there too it's sponsors like john and fireside that make our shows and growing guest lists possible. Fireside Home Solutions and FiresideHomeSolutions.com. Hey, look who it is. 
Katie Versio, the director of financial planning, Evergreen Golf Call. Hi, Katie. The market's up. How's everything at Evergreen? I'm doing well, Mitch. Thanks for having me. Everything here is going well. How are you doing? Everybody is good here. I'm ready for the new trivia quiz. The theme today is what? Today we're doing a economic and market update. I'm okay. revisiting some of the questions we discussed at this time last year and just seeing how things have changed. Questions that I undoubtedly missed at this time last year. I'll try to get some answers right and I'm ready for question number one from Evergreen Golf Call. So the Federal Reserve started increasing interest rates in March of 2022 in an effort to cool inflation and slow down the economy without tipping us into a recession. How many times has the Fed raised rates since March of 2022? Is it seven times, nine times, or 11? It's a lot. I'm throwing seven out. It's either nine or 11. 11 sounds extremely high. I'm gonna go nine. So it actually is 11 times. Yeah, so the Fed has the fastest tightening cycle on record. Where interest rates have increased significantly, now we see the two-year treasury around 4.8%. So while we don't know what will happen moving forward, if they're going to raise again, if they'll pause or if they'll cut, we think now is a good time to lock in yields on fixed income. And of course, Mitch is in a familiar spot. Oh, for one, I'm ready for question number two. Okay, so in June of 2022, the inflation rate was 9.1%, the highest rate in four decades. What's the current inflation rate as of June 2023? Is it 3%, 4%, or 5%? Well, it's way down, but I don't think it's down to 3, so I'll go 4% B again. It's actually 3%. So inflation has come down significantly over the last 12 months. In addition, unemployment has stayed low, under 4%. Right now, it's under 3.6%. What they've been doing appears to have had some effect on these markers. And there I am at 0 for 2. I'm probably staring at another 0% in the face. I'm ready for question number three. Have a little mercy on me, would you please, Katie? (laughs) All right, I'm giving you an easy one this time. So it's a true or false. Okay. Both stocks and bonds are up in 2023. Absolutely true. I'm going to get one right, Katie. Ding, ding, ding. That's right. Stocks are up 19% and bonds are up a little over 2%. So this is following the worst year on record for a balanced portfolio that I know we've talked about in the past. So it's been a strong start in the first half of the year. All the ups and downs over the last many years make this a great time to learn more about my partner, Evergreen Golf Call, a one-stop shop for all of your investment needs. Learn about them at evergreengk.com. Unfiltered. And Snyder hits this one well. Deep right center field. Going back. It is gone. A pitch hit home run. And the Pirates lead it 4 3. Welcome back, Travis Snyder. That's huge. Oh, what a big swing of the bat from Travis Snyder. Our next guest. On Mitch Unfiltered, he was a high school superstar baseball player at Jackson High in Mill Creek, Washington. I think the years 2003 to 2006, so accomplished with so much potential that he was the 14th overall pick by the Toronto Blue Jays in the first round of the 2006 Major League Baseball draft after breezing through the minor leagues with a couple of speed bumps. He became the youngest starter in baseball 
in 2008. And 14 years later, he walks away from the game that had in so many ways shaped his life. Ladies and gentlemen, here he is. Old friend Travis Snyder. How are you, Travis? I'm good, man. It's good to see you. Good to connect and and excited to have this conversation. Hard to believe that the last time you and I talked, you were a high schooler getting ready to be drafted from Linwood, Washington, Mill Creek, Jackson High. When you look back upon that 18-year-old Travis Snyder now, what do you see when you look at him? Uh... It's tough. You know, in the moment, <clears throat> felt like I had everything figured out. I felt like my life was on a path that was, you know, not to be stopped despite all the things I was experiencing in my personal life off the field. Uh, and just a, a really incredibly special time for me, my family, the baseball community, the extended family, uh, all the second parents and, and grandparents that I had throughout this process in my childhood and playing sports, being able to celebrate that moment, have a big draft party, uh, enjoy kind of that few weeks between getting drafted and, and shipping off. And, and, you know, next thing I knew I was in Pulaski, Virginia with no cell phone service and eating two foot long subways a day, living the dream. Were you close to going to Arizona state or once you were drafted in the first round, were you like, okay, I can't pass up signing this contract right now. I had a pretty good indication that, I was going to be a top two or three round pick. And for me, uh, coming from my family situation, financially speaking, that was life changing money. Uh, my goal was to play professional baseball. And I felt like from a maturation standpoint, I was ready to do it. So I, I love the opportunity of playing for Pat Murphy back in those days and, and the wild boys they had down in Arizona state, but it worked out to where I was able to pursue that professional side of things right out of high school. You talked a little bit about a moment ago, the balancing act of all the great things that was going on that were going on in, in, in Travis Snyder's life versus some of the turbulence. Would you share with our audience who don't know, maybe haven't read the articles, what was going on that was difficult for not only a, an 18 year old, but going back to when you were 13 and 14, when your mom first got sick? Yeah. So, I, I mean, there's a long history there, but uh, to keep it short, we as a family experienced a lot of ups and downs. Uh, my mom battled addiction throughout my teenage years and even throughout my childhood. As a result of that and, and some poor diagnosis within the medical experience she had, pneumonia turned into a coma and she spent 14 days breathing off a machine. This was my freshman year. I just played varsity football. Uh, again, you talk about the trajectory of a path starting so early for me as a 14, 15 year old kid. I was out there on the field playing with grown men. And her and I were uh, going through our struggles as, as parent and, and son. She was battling, you know, this horrible illness. Uh, and, and it took her years to kind of go through the rehabilitation process. And I want to first say that, you know, my mom was an incredible soul, somebody who really taught me that the value of love and caring for people. Um, but I witnessed, you know, her struggles uh, through addiction, through her family history and, and the things that I've learned now in my 30s about what she went through in her childhood and what my grandpa went through. So it's been a rewarding experience looking back on those those times and realizing, you know, I was a scared young man and had to put on the, the face and, and go out there and prove to everybody that I knew what I was doing and that I had to figure it out, even though a lot of my family and, and close friends, parents around me were just scratching their head at the situation we were going through because uh, it was incredibly difficult. And it was something that the family, we rallied with the support of the community around us, um, were able to get through that. And she was able to get healthy enough to where <clears throat> she was back home and out of the hospital 
uh, going in my junior and senior year. Um, and around that time we got evicted from our house and, uh, that I grew up in my whole childhood. So there was just a lot of turbulence that was taking place off of the field that became normal. And I think that's something I realized looking at not just my own life, but the people around me that I'm close with and, and people that I've met throughout playing the game of baseball, what's normalized in everybody's life is different. And I think we don't really take the time to detach and look at it through a different lens. And instead of looking at my mom or looking at the, the situation and wanting to blame her and carry that resentment, for me, it's been a journey of healing, right? And that's something in, in your 16, 17, 18 years old, that's not even registering for you. And at 30, 35, those are the yeah. things that at the end of my career, I had to face and realize if I want to be a better husband, I want to be a better dad, this is stuff I got to deal with. So, so many of us have lost parents, including myself. You lost your mom, uh, I guess a year into the minor league career, something like that, pretty close to after yep. you signed. What were those days like? Here you are. We talk about all the time on the, on the old radio show and on the podcast. You know, baseball is a different animal in the way that you've got all these high schoolers that are shipped out to little minor league cities and, and on buses, and they're not ready to do that maturity-wise. What's it like now you're 19 – you're trying to figure those things out and then you lose your mom back at home. Yeah, I think what we just talked about, that experience of kind of being on my own. My dad was there, but he was working two jobs. My mom was, you know, essentially dead for 14 days and then took her years to really get to a place just to have a normal life. So I grew up early and I know there's a lot of people that probably listen to the show that had experiences in their childhood where they had to become the parent. They had to take care of, you know, certain situations at a, at a very young age. And, yeah. and I think... Part of that was a huge benefactor for me to be able to go out and live on my own, despite a lot of poor choices I made and credit to the Blue Jays for having an incredible support staff that helped me, you know, navigate some of those poor choices and, and staying out of, you know, real trouble, but also being able to build a support team around me to be able to help make sense of the, the struggles that I was having, the anger that I was dealing with, uh, and just overall as a human being trying to help guide me on a path, right. To find a healthier lifestyle. And I think those are, again, things that unfortunately as a, as a teenage kid, I went through and some things, you know, at a younger age, but again, those are the life lessons that we learn. And, mm -hmm. uh, I was fortunate enough to have enough people around me that, that cared and loved about me, including my parents, despite their struggles that were able to kind of push me to this place, get me around the right people, get me on the right teams, have that community support that I talked about earlier. And that really transitioned into pro ball. And I'm grateful for, you know, all the coaches and support staff and trainers that, you know, watched me as a, as an 18, 19, 20, 21 year old hellion, just running around crazy but going out on the field and performing, right? And that was always the catch 22 being an athlete. I mean, it happens in high school, it happens in college, it happens in pro ball. If you perform on the field, they will find a way to help you, right? Whether for better or for worse. And I think that's where I was lucky in those situations to have good people that not only wanted me to succeed on the field, but wanted me to get the help that I needed. Should they have had a harder hand looking back on it? Would you have prospered a little bit more from somebody if they had treated you a little more harshly with some of the mistakes you made, would that have changed anything? That's a great question. I think looking back on some of those situations, the organization, especially at the time, you know, this is really pre mental health in sports. This is really pre understand the pressure. Um, it was a still very old school mentality of rub some dirt on it and get back out there. But there was also this growing, uh, like I said, support systems within the organizations that, Again, I think you can discipline somebody and you can punish them, 
especially as an 18 to 22 year old kid, but it's like, if you're in college, you're doing this stuff anyways. And and I have a lot of buddies that went to college and, and did a lot of the same things. Right. And it's just kind of that age frame where hopefully we can prepare our children, right. To make better choices at that age and still be a kid and experience it. I'm not trying to say you got to just you know, do everything by the book, but at the end of the day, yeah. the choices that I was making, a few of those choices along the way led to some, some situations where I had to do reflection. Right. And I think that was the most important part of having that support staff and something that I was always in, you see it on some of the tweets, I, I don't have a problem being vulnerable in the right situations. Taking ownership is something that from day one I did in making those mistakes. And I think that was what gave the Blue Jays and gave other organizations that uh, that idea that I was mature beyond my years, despite some of the immature decisions that I was making. So again, I don't know if changing the way that they handled those situations would yeah. have changed the trajectory of my career. I think what, what I experienced my struggles really stem from, you know, early childhood success, creating this identity of being a baseball player, as I talked about in the tweet, really succumbing to the external opinions and things or reading articles about yourself and Googling yourself, pre-social media, and then social media, right? It takes a whole new beast for you to be able to open up Twitter. And after you're two for four with five RBIs and two home runs, not to feel like you're on top of the world. And then you go for 12 or, or, or two for 20 and you got everybody in your inbox just telling you how bad you are. So right, right. The, that's the volatility. I think that as we have evolved as a society with social media and things like that, uh, it's a lot harder to hide. It's a lot harder to get away with some of the things that you could get away with in the nineties and the two thousands on some level, there is a different level of accountability we all have to have. And, and that's not a bad thing. So you just talked about it on your Twitter, or I guess it's called X now lunchbox hero 45, which I want to go back to how you got that nickname way back as a kid. It's around the trading deadline. And you opened up about the day that you were traded. And I kind of vaguely remember that you were at Safeco field you guys were at Safeco Field when you found out that the Blue Jays, and I don't want to say you had given up on their their superstar first-round draft choice, but that's the way it's portrayed. When a guy who's drafted number 14 overall in the first round out of high school and zooms through the minors, gets dealt after getting to the big leagues, the way we take it as guys that do what I do, the Blue Jays finally give up on Travis Snyder. So go back to that day. First of all, tell us why you decided to tweet out what you did. And I I tell everybody, go read what he did. Very moving, very vulnerable, very courageous. And take us back to that day when you were traded. Talk a little bit more about how you felt. Yeah, it wasn't something that I had really planned out content, right? It was like, okay, tread deadline. This is the story I'm going to tell. I just woke up and I felt moved to share that story that just kind of came to me. And I was like, man, this is something I've talked about a few times briefly in interviews. Just, Oh yeah, you got traded in front of your hometown fans and, you know, being from Seattle and, and just even the pressures and the anxiety of coming back and playing in front of all your family and friends at that stage of your career, when you're not hitting 300 and the MVP of your team. Um, so there's deeper things to that, but I also really looked at that, opportunity to share a story. And I had no idea that it was going to get the traction and the reach that it got. And then just the responses I got were overwhelmingly just beautiful, introspective fans and just humans looking at this like, oh man, not only is this a baseball personality situation that we forget sometimes, and I do as a you know diehard fantasy football player, how to really keep things in perspective. But we also have the 
challenges of being a fan and then being able to understand what the person on the field is going through. And as I've gone through this multiple years of therapy, uh, really trying to understand where the frustration and anger came from throughout my career, the baggage that I talked about carrying into my career in Pittsburgh um, and trying to make sense. I mean, I've talked at length in many articles about my experiences there, but as I've gotten older and as I've had more time to reflect and really dive deeper into kind of what I feel like are the root causes of all that stuff, you know, I realize it's a great opportunity for me to not only share for other players who are going through that. I'm, I'm incredibly passionate about helping the high school, college, and even the youth below high school age kids mm-hmm. understand how fragile we can make ourselves by buying into this whole world if we have to achieve at such a young age, which I did. I checked all those boxes, right? But the opportunity to just share a story, to be vulnerable, it's something that I, I've always taken a lot of pride in in the platform that I have, but also wanting to be, you know, respectful of my situation. Um, and, and it feels like moving forward that every time I've been vulnerable in these situations, the responses have been just, again, overwhelming. Because it positive. resonates. Because, yeah, because it resonates yeah. with all of us. You don't have to be a big league baseball player to understand and feel for what you talked about on Twitter. I can, anybody can, in any line of work. You can you can understand. Yep. It just came right off the computer to me and, and really hit me the right way. So I think that's why you got well, the response that you did. Yeah. And I think as you put it, like we all get so micro-focused on our careers, right? Whether you're the, the face of KJR, you're the person who is on TV talking about the Mariners pre and post game, or you're the, you know, Jerry DePoto, or you're the people that sure. are in these positions sure. where you are literally trying your best, but you get so micro-focused that you're totally. unable to detach and really put things in perspective. And that's where, as I've detached from playing baseball the last couple of years and really worked hard to go through this process and understanding what I went through, that's where I really started to see the connections, right? With other athletes, with other guys that were retiring from baseball, with people in all walks of life. doesn't matter if you're a professional, what you do, or just trying to find your way in this world. I mean, I have lots of friends and families that are, you know, late teens, early twenties. And we have these deep conversations about what, what is my purpose? Right. And it's like, everybody's purpose is different, but we all are walking this line where it's like, we want to achieve, we want to go to the best school. We want to get the best job. We want to be able to tell everybody that we're the senior vice president or we're the account manager or whatever that. And it's like, those are the things we look for, for that external validation. Travis, if, if you go back I mean, look, you played, and I'm going to ask at the end a question that I asked Rick Meyer a week or two ago, the same question, and I'll save that for the end. But when you look back in your career, you played 14 years of, of professional baseball. You had some really great moments in big stadiums and, and, and legendary places. Could you have handled any one situation different? I mean, when you look back upon it, can you go back to a certain moment either in the minor leagues and the big leagues and say, Hey, had I handled that different, maybe my numbers on Wikipedia or baseballreference.com after 14 years would look like this many all-star games, you know, this many home runs, hitting 300 instead of hitting 240, or is there nothing you could have done different that would have changed the ultimate outcome on the field, do you think? I think two things. One is allowing what I call ego to start to create the storylines and narratives of 10 years, a hundred million dollars, what I was going to do, right? Play 10 years, make a hundred million, be a franchise player in Toronto. And I'm pushing for a hall of fame, right? That's literally my mindset as being one of the best players at my entire life going into pro ball and hitting my way through the minor leagues at such a young age. 
that was the projections that I started to buy into. Instead of realizing if I just stay focused on being 18, being 19, being 20, yeah, I'm in the big leagues, but I need to stay focused and keep my head down and not get into all that external support and or you know negativity that ends up coming when you start to struggle. That would be number one. Number two would be when I got sent down. That was again, emotionally speaking, I was not prepared for that. We can debate all day if a 20 year old should be in the big leagues and if they're ready for it. I think physically I was ready for that. I did deal with some injuries early on in my career, especially in 2009 and played through it and didn't make a big deal about it. But more importantly, I wasn't prepared when the team told me that I was going back down to AAA. And I took that personally. I took that as you're not good enough. I took that, you know, it's one of those things where my insecurities had been stuffed down so deep. I, I never realized that I was really that fragile and everybody looked at me as a tough guy. And, and I grinded through a lot of things in my career and bounced back after a lot of haymakers. And I, I talk about that in other tweets, but mm-hmm. really it's those moments, you know, for young athletes that are going through failure, real failure for the first time. Um, like you said, a couple of speed bumps in the minor leagues, but let's be honest, like I, I banged all the way through and, and proved that I could hit in the major leagues through my first two months. And I think that was, carrying those projections from the ego and not being prepared for that first time that I got sent down and realizing, I don't know what the percentage is, but I got to imagine it's over 50% of people get sent down to the Meyer leagues. And I also watched a lot of guys get sent down from the Meyer leagues and never go back because they weren't able to get over that hump mentally. And I felt like I was able to get over the hump, but every time it was just another chink off that armor, where it was like my self-confidence, that unshakable confidence that I talk about was no longer there. And I felt like I played the rest of my career looking over my shoulder after a bad week or after a bad month, it's like, okay, here it comes. I'm getting set down or I'm getting designated or, or something's going to happen. Right. Where I just haven't proven to be the best player on the team, which it shouldn't matter. Right. Just being the best version of myself every single day, showing up to the field and getting after it. You know, I have these notes that I, that I prepare with every interview. And, and then as I listen to you talk, so many other things come to my mind. I'm I promise I'm not going to make you late for your, your road trip with your family and your kids, but As I sit here and listen to you, you know, we have a lot of fun on our podcast. My partner uh, on the show is going through the the days of having a 12, 13, 14-year-old daughter who plays softball and played in the Little League World Series. You made it to San Bernardino. We joke about the the nonsense and all the hysteria around youth sports. I would bet that you have a nice perspective on that, having been that kid – and now being the parent of kids that are about to go through might be able to go through some of that. What about the way we as parents deal with that and all the craziness that's going on right now with Little League and youth sports? I mean, this is a perfect segue. The company, we're getting ready to launch. You see it on my Twitter. It's 3A Athletics. And and our whole goal is we have two products that will be ready for market in hopefully the next four weeks. One is a parent guidebook, and this is a guidebook to help you understand not only what you're bringing into the relationship with your kids as the parent in the sport that they play from your past experiences, right? The things that are conscious and subconscious and just creating an awareness of, okay, these are all the things I need to be aware of when I'm sitting in the stands and I want to yell at the umpire, I want to yell at my kid or my four-year-old doesn't want to play t-ball. Am I going to force them to go out on the field or am I going to go play in the park with them, right? So there's a parent guidebook. It talks nothing about how to teach your kid how to hit, nothing about teaching your kid how to throw. It's all about creating a healthy relationship with your child in the sport that they play. There's also a coach's version, right? And these were originally written for youth soccer. My partner, Seth Taylor is a therapeutic life coach. He's worked with myself, James Paxson, a number of other MLS and MLB guys 
to really get this deeper understanding. And he's a big part of this, this transformation that I've gone through over the last three or four years of understanding how deep this actually goes. And, and that's where, as you've said, I got three kids, we did coach pitch this year, right? And I'm watching all the parents, observing all the parents, observing all these coaches that I think 95% of them to hundred percent are out there trying to do their, they're doing their best with what they got in terms of their normalization from their childhood, what they experienced, all that stuff. And I'm bringing in this whole career of 15, 16 years of playing professional baseball. And what, what is it, what should it look like? Right. And I know I'm, I'm looked to as a leader out there on the field. So it was a really rewarding experience for me to kind of go through the early stages. I got a nephew who just, you know, took second place in the Washington state little league, 10 year, nine and 10 year olds, you know, state championship, which we won when we were nine and 11, we yeah. took second yeah. when we were 10 and 12, right. The yeah. storylines that start to build at such, such a young age. Yeah. I got another nephew who's committed to go to Gonzaga. He committed as a sophomore. Right. And I've worked with him over the last year, unpacking the pressure that comes with just being an early commit, right. And being a guy out there on the field that has a target on your back because of this title, right. Because of the projection of what our ego says, Hey, if we are this person, we have to do everything at this level. And those are the things where three athletics, we have these two products. We'll be creating a player version as well. We want to do different age groups and we want to go deeper, right. And creating content for parents. Nice. Similar to what we're doing, what I'm doing on Twitter, right. This is just kind of a build up to when we're ready to launch the website, ready to launch the products and really to really start cranking out content and potentially Great. doing a podcast where we can empower parents, right? The, the title of the book for parents is called hero. We want the parents to be the hero in that relationship. We want the parents to feel like they have the baseline knowledge and understanding that the conversation before and after the game in the car, are some of the most important awesome. conversations you're going to have with your kids. So, I can't wait yeah, to hear. I, I hope you'll, you'll reach out to me just as soon as the website's ready. And when you need uh, promotion on that, I'm all for it as a, as the father of kids that, uh, that played the game that you played for so many years, absolutely willing to help get the message out in any way, shape or form that we can. A couple of fun things for you before you go. Lunchbox hero 45 is your, is your ex username lunchbox hero comes from when you were a kid you ate everything in sight is that right lunchbox uh, freshman year i mentioned say around the time my mom got sick i played varsity football and at that time i ran with some of the upperclassmen uh did some things probably as a freshman that you know i wouldn't encourage other kids to do as a freshman but played the linebacker led the team in tackles and was i'm built like kind of like a lunchbox right i'm short <laughs> wider than i am tall and and i was you know at that stage uh, the upperclassmen, they, they gave me the nickname lunchbox, lunchbox. and I just rolled with it. Um, <laughs> definitely love to eat, uh, no shortage of, of food posts <laughs> on my Twitter. That's kind of what spurred me to get into Twitter is Brent Lillibridge and Matt Triassopo, sure. the old school, Steven Souza, that crew we started working out with 12 years ago. And Brent had gotten Twitter and he said, well, I got this free Xbox from tweeting out. I'm like, okay, if I can get free meals, which I ended up getting quite a few as a player, <laughs> uh, that would, that was the whole goal with it, right? Post food, get free meals, make the connections again, double-edged sword, being an athlete when you're on there and just a human, right? Cause it can be very positive or very negative, but, and then the hero came from AJ Burnett. I played a lot of guitar hero in my young single days. Oh. Um, video, okay. video games are a big outlet for me. Like a lot of kids are, uh, shredded on the guitar back in those days. So they started calling me hero, which is kind of a play on what I did on the field, but also more geared towards that guitar hero being a young kind of phenom, right? I hate using that word, but that's, that's part of it. Favorite city for food, favorite big league city, the guy who loves to eat. You must've had a favorite place that you'd like to go. I mean, Toronto was great being a hometown or being the hometown for us at the time. Um, Jacob's company steak, 
you know, a few of the places that aren't there anymore, but I mean, I got treated really, really well there. Yeah. I, I would say the best restaurant I ever ate at was prime One Twelve in Miami though. We had to, and it's the first time I ever had a five, like real a five Kobe beef. Uh, and they had deep fried Oreos, which okay. I, I can't eat now. Otherwise I'll get sick. But that, that was the best. Okay. One of your kids comes up to you one day if they haven't already and says, dad, favorite three on the field baseball moments. I'm going to put you on the, on the hook here. Got to be on the field baseball moments, but it can be from little league, high school, minor leagues, major leagues. I know you won a home run derby in, in minor league ball. They nicknamed you the franchise at one point. Favorite three. And by the way, who beat you in San Bernardino? I'm a little embarrassed that you didn't win in San We got waxed. We got waxed, man. And I'll say this. I, I struck out the first three guys and hit a home run to lead off the game. And oh, I, you couldn't did. Get, I couldn't throw a strike the next inning. Cried myself into the outfield. Had an oh. asthma attack. And luckily, the, boy, the boys picked me up. And we grinded to get back into it. We yeah. got you know, we got beat by uh, Southern California, 10 rundos. And yeah. then we lost to Hawaii. And, okay. uh, uh, which is funny, right? I remember those things vividly. Okay. Uh, three favorite would be winning the state championship with most of the guys that I played through T-ball, coach pits, little league, summer ball, the, the culmination, of all that work on the field was really special, uh, and being undefeated. And then number two, I would say my major league debut, flying out the family, being able to make my debut in old Yankee stadium. The last year, that you got a hit, you got a um, hit, right? You were one, one for three ground roll double off car Pavano. Um, nice. and Jeter was the first guy to congratulate me after my first hit. So, I mean, that's a cool story to be able to tell. Wow. And then, uh, number three, would probably be 2014. I mean, I love 2013 with the Pirates making the playoffs and breaking the streak. That was just incredible. But I wasn't an everyday player on that team. Um, in 2014, I went through, you know, opening day starter, last guy on the bench, pitched in the game, was a pinch hitter, led the league in pinch hits, grinding my way back in the lineup. The cutching went down. I ended up getting a chance to play every day and played really well. And, you know, we ended up winning the wild card spot. And we hosted the Giants that year, which, again, we faced Madison Bumgarner, and they went on to win the World Series. Nobody right. could touch that guy. Right. But for me, that was a, a really special experience because the playoffs in 13 were awesome. But then 14, it was like, man, this is so great. So I mentioned the uh, the Rick Meyer interview. I recently caught up with him on a couple podcasts ago, and I, I asked him this question. You know, all of us, including myself, that played baseball as kids – we were in the backyard dreaming about what you were able to accomplish, become a big leaguer, hit game-winning home runs. Maybe there wasn't a 10-year, $100 million contract or induction into the Hall of Fame, but you did something for 16 years that so many millions of kids every day dream about. But maybe it wasn't to the level that you had hoped and the Blue Jays had hoped and baseball fans around the world would have hoped. So are you able to look back on your career with complete pride or will there always be a little struggle with what could have been for Travis Snyder? I think I am at peace with it. And that's a product of a lot of hours doing the therapy, doing the work, having the vulnerable conversations and to me, it's being able to being able to say I played until the wheels came off. I mean, I had multiple surgeries. I grinded through tons of injuries. I had three kids during the last you know five five years that I was playing. Uh, and for me, that perspective, the priorities, things started to shift. I knew that I needed to go home and work on myself, like I said earlier. So 
I'm at peace knowing that things did not turn out the way my ego had projected and that being able to share those stories, be vulnerable about those moments where my mental health was not in a good place uh, to empower athletes, whether it be current, former, up and coming major leaguers, high school kids, eight, nine, 10 new kids are getting put into these 60, 70 game schedules with all the expectations to be ranked in the state and lose two games. And you know what I'm saying? Those are the things now where I recognize my purpose was not to go out there and play 10 years, make a hundred million dollars and be the hall of famer. Cause it, I never would have gotten that kick in the face that I needed to humble me and say, okay, listen, if you want to be a better version of yourself, these are the things you actually have to do. Right. And when you just succeed, 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 right. It's very difficult to have that self-awareness and be introspective and say, no, these are the, these are my character defects. These are the things that I'm bringing into my marriage and bringing into my, my parenting, bringing in relationships with the people that I care the most about. And I realized, right, I played indie ball for one year and I had all the love from all my friends, all my family, where it's like, at the time, I'm like, what am I doing? Why am I I'm major leaguer? I never should have played indie ball, but the people around me still love me, right? And that was a big revelation, which sounds, again, very insecure that we're always looking, right, as athletes for everybody to put us up on this pedestal. And that's just what I had experienced my whole life. But again, grateful that I've been able to do the work and, and have that perspective shift because the t detachment and, and the work that's been done has been real. And it's called 3A Sports that we should be on the lookout for, Yeah, right? Yeah, and I'll follow up with you. I'll follow up with you with all the details Great. as we get things rolling over the next couple of weeks. Travis, you're the best. Thank you so much. Uh, the tweets were Anytime, incredible. Man. Incredible. And just uh, the way you're willing to open up for our audience we're, we're incredibly appreciative. Thank you so very much. And all the best to you and your kids and your family. And let's keep in touch, okay? Absolutely. Grateful for the opportunity, man. Hey, look who it is. It's Lindsay Schwartz of Daniel's Broiler. Lindsay, are the restaurants still thriving with you on the golf course three or four days a week? Hey, Mitch, good good to talk to you. Yeah, I wish I was on three or four days a week. Come but, on uh, now. But I, yeah, I can't complain. Come I'm on now. You're telling I'm, me you're not on the golf course three or four days a week? I'm on maybe like one or two days a no, week. No, you're but, not. <laughs> Sometimes three or four. All right. I always focus our attention on some obvious qualities of Daniel's like the steaks and seafood, the incredible ambiance and service. But here's something we never talk about or don't talk about enough desserts. Now, can we talk about desserts and make people in our audience want to go to Daniel's just for the desserts? I think so. I mean, we, you're right. We haven't talked about it much. I'll tell you what, I'm a big dessert guy, so I would love to talk about okay. desserts. I'm not a big dessert guy. I'm not a big drinker, but I want to hear you talk about the desserts at Daniel's. Tell me, please. I'm a dessert guy and a drinker, but, but <laughs> let's, let's talk about, let's just talk about desserts. I'll tell you what, you know, we've been around a long time since 1980. We've got a handful of desserts that have been around since day one that are just old school, old time favorites. And they're so good that we, we never change them. The, we've got a New York style cheesecake, which I think you have to have if you're a steakhouse. We have a creme brulee, which is awesome. Again, you have to have it. The other one that we've had forever is the coconut fudge sundae. I may have talked about it a little bit, but it is so good. I mean, it, and we do it differently. It's, a, it's almost like an upside down sundae. So we line the bowl with fudge and refrigerate that. So you've got this thick layer of fudge on the bottom. And then we put the delicious uh, coconut 
ice cream on top of that. And I mean, people have loved that for over 40 years. It's awesome. Do you have an ambulance sitting outside to take me directly to the hospital <laughs> after I have that dessert? <laughs> we should. I don't know. We, we know where all the closest uh, hospitals are to each uh, restaurant. So, so you don't have to worry about that. But but then, you know, we also have some, some of the newer ones. We've got a chocolate decadence cake that is relatively new. It is what it is. It's a decadent chocolate cake served with vanilla ice cream. A newer one is a peach Melba butter cake. So butter cake is something that we've seen at other steakhouses around the country. And then I got to mention also just, uh, it sounds simple, but just the ice cream. We, we use Olympic Mountain ice cream, which is a company, family owned company that's been around as long as we have. And uh, you really just see their stuff in restaurants. You don't see it anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And they come up with these amazing, unique flavors. They kind of pick the flavor and, and we serve it. But like, for example, there's a brown butter almond toffee, which is killer. Strawberry rhubarb pie, white chocolate espresso flake with caramel swirl. Jeez. I could keep going. It's wow. uh, it, it's it's been a staple for us and, and a great partnership for us. And we just love it. My God, I ask you about your steaks, your seafood, your ambiance, and you give me eight seconds. I didn't know I need to be asking you about dessert all these years. I told you, I've known you 20 years. You know, you can't figure out the right questions. I'm a dessert guy. Let's go. Daniel's Broiler, world-class steakhouses. Unfiltered. Big Ten is getting even bigger. A momentous day in the history of the nation's oldest athletic conference as West Coast powers Oregon and Washington accept invitations to join the Big Ten next season. Well, holy shitski. What a week in the world of the Pac-12 football conference or conference as a whole. You don't need me to recap it. But we do need Christian Capel's perspective, who has been all over it like a cheap suit on Montlake, on Montlake.com. You got to check it out. I'm a subscriber. Christian, wow. Isn't that a penetrating, award-winning first question? Wow. It's a big one. Uh, that's uh, <laughs> that's a lot of people's reaction, I think. Wow. And and oh, my God. And how, how did this happen? It's a strange day when... You've got a lot of people at Washington celebrating pulling this off while at the same time mourning the death of a conference that that this move just solidified. Yeah. So it's yeah. it's a lot of mixed emotions for people. Couple of questions before we dive into it about you and what you do. What's it been like covering this thing minute by minute? It's gotta be unlike anything you've ever worked on before, I'd imagine. Yeah, it's been fascinating. It's been strange. It has not been pleasant a lot of the time just because the man, the rancor, the the vitriol, the the tenor of the discussions and the arguments and the discourse on social media and Big 12 fans sniping at Pac-12 fans. And, you know, there's a certain subset of college football fans who have kind of been preying on the Pac-12's downfall and have kind of hoped that this would happen or forecasted it would happen and made jokes about it happening. And I I think that's too bad. I I don't know how losing a West Coast conference with over a century of history benefits the game or makes anybody's college football viewing uh, experience any better. It's really it's too bad, you know, and there's 
there's a lot of people to blame. Yeah. You start with Larry Scott, we'll the get presidents there. who we'll get enabled there. him. Don't beat me yeah. to the punch. You Don't could. beat me to the punch here. You know, I've got a list of things, <laughs> and if you start throwing in things and get me out of order, the whole thing's going to go up in smoke. So let me ask you first to tell me something about this story that maybe the average Joe Schmo, like me, Joe Schmo fan like me, who's just been following on you know, social media, almost in real time on social media, but we don't fully grasp because we're not as close to it as you are or something that we may not understand about how this thing played out. I would say, and maybe if you've been following the blow by blow, you might understand this, but I think that a real possibility existed that if not the 10, then at least the nine without Colorado, because they got impatient. I think there was a good chance that if George Klyovkov had brought a media rights deal to the table that was in the range of the per year payouts that the Big 12 schools were getting. Right. I do think that the nine remaining presidents wanted to sign that deal and wanted to stay in the Pac-12. Arnamari Kautse spoke with with the media a little bit on Saturday afternoon. And, you know, she talked about how for the last year, the focus was trying to keep the Pac-12 together and trying to keep Washington in the Pac-12 and trying to find that path. And the media rights deal that was presented, they just viewed as simply untenable. It just wasn't good enough. It was through Apple TV. It was all streaming. They want to be on linear television, all these sorts of things. I don't think George Klyovkov needed to bring them a revolutionary, perfect media rights deal. I think if it just would have been somewhere in the range of the Big 12 with a strong linear presence, that they could have got those nine together. I, I that's what I, I would want people to, to take away maybe that I think that the presidents at these schools always going to skew toward wanting to maintain the status quo. I don't know that Washington and Oregon were desperate to get to the Big 10, but there they go. You you just stepped into something very interesting because I was going to ask you later, but now I'll go ahead and flip the card a little bit. It feels too simple and easy to lay this at the feet of Larry Scott. You know, obviously there was misguided leadership in terms of the Pac-12 network and all the things that he did wrong. But I feel like the school presidents could have pulled the plug earlier on Scott and they didn't. I also feel like, as you just pointed out, that George Klyovkov, he had a year. USC and UCLA left, what, about a year ago right now, and he had a year to bring something to the nine or ten remaining presidents that was attractive enough. And if you say they were inclined to sign something that didn't have to be all world, he had a year to do it, and he failed. And Now, he, was, he had an inferior hand that he was dealt to start, but still he had a year, Christian, and he couldn't bring anything of sort. He had an inferior hand and he overplayed it. And that's a that's a big factor, too. It's been reported a couple of places. Of course, it's hard to get exact details on these these TV negotiations. But I mean, it sounds like he was asking for way more money than anybody, any of the projections out there, any of the media consulting companies would have told you the Pac-12 was worth. And he spoke at their media day after USC and UCLA left a year ago, talking about how the Pac-12 was going to be positioned really well, and then showed up at media day five days before Colorado left the conference this year, still projecting this confidence that they were going to be where they needed to be to get schools to sign the grant of rights. And um, it just it just seemed like he did not have a strong grasp of what the market was, uh, what what his negotiating position was, yeah. what the preferences and the the where the deal breakers were among the conference presidents. And going back to Larry Scott, 
every time someone throws out Larry Scott as villain number one, I look, I can agree that he's at the top of the list, but you cannot talk about Larry Scott without talking about the conference presidents. presidents as yes. you said, yes, he has, he had bosses, he had 12 of them and they basically let him do whatever he wanted. Absolutely. And when you talk about all the people that are throwing stones at Oregon and Washington for making this decision almost a year later after USC and UCLA, I kind of equate it to when Alex Rodriguez left Seattle to go to Texas for $252 million. It's easy for lots of us to criticize the two schools and the other four that are going to the Big 12, for that matter, like we did with Alex Rodriguez. We all criticize him for leaving Seattle to go to Texas. But I asked then, and I'll ask now, would any of us had done anything different if we were in Alex Rodriguez's shoes were we going to turn down $252 million guaranteed to stay with Seattle at $90 million, which was their offer? And I'll ask the same question about this. All these people on social media that are saying, shame on Oregon, shame on Washington. If they were in power at UW and at Oregon in Eugene, wouldn't they all have been forced to do exactly the same thing? I think so, yeah. I was. Uh, I think I was 13 years old or 14 years old when Alex Rodriguez left for Texas. And I was so mad. I remember I was so mad. I can't believe it. Yeah. All he cares about is the money. And we threw the, dollars at him when he came back. Yeah. You know, the fake money. The and that monopoly. was so fun. Yeah. It was fun. It was I fun. mean, that, it was funny. And as I've gotten older, the one thing that I've come to empathize with Alex Rodriguez on, I look back, I'm like, what did he do? He just took it. He just took the best deal. We don't villainize athletes for doing that anymore because we shouldn't, right? We've kind of, the, the tide has kind of turned. Get your money, get paid. Of course. Of course. Of course. The difference with Alex Rodriguez is that he could have lived off $90 million. He could have survived okay. off $90 million. Okay. Washington and Oregon would tell you staying in the Pac-12 would have been cost prohibitive. Interesting. They wouldn't have been able to pay their bills. Washington would not have been able to pay this upcoming skyrocketing debt payment on the loans that, that funded the renovation of Husky Stadium. And they, they're still paying Jimmy Lake and they got to pay their football staff more and more money every year. There are bills they have to pay. They're running a deficit already with what they're getting in the Pac-12. Any dollar amount less than that going forward, even a, a flat dollar amount, even the same distribution going forward would have made it really, really, really hard for them. So if the Big Ten's going to throw a life raft and the Pac-12 as well, streaming, subscriptions, tiers, incentives, maybe, maybe, so maybe, no choice. If, if, if. So there was no choice. All these people that are getting angry at Jen Cohen and Oregon, there's no choice. I think, yeah, I think that's they absolutely what they okay. would say. All right. Whispers about the specifics of the Apple TV deal that was placed before them. I think we know by now that all the Big Ten schools are getting $60 million. The Johnny-come-latelys at Oregon and Washington are getting 30 and then plus one each year until the end of the contract. So essentially, they're a half partner at $30 million a year in terms of the shared revenue. Any idea? You want to throw out a number what these schools... We're going to get from the Apple, obviously not very good exposure because not a lot of people are going to watch on Apple TV. That's a problem. But how about dollars and cents? What are we talking about? Yeah, the reporting's kind of all over the place. I know that ESPN had reported the the base payment, the, the guaranteed amount was like in the low 20 millions with the potential to earn. And I, I it, again, the details are kind of scarce, but any any upside to this deal was going to be contingent on selling a lot of subscriptions. 
getting a lot of fans okay. to sign up to Apple, Apple TV, TV Plus to pay the money for the Pac-12 football package. Oh. And, you know, we don't know what those tiers are, yeah. how many thousands or tens of thousands or, or whatever, or what the dollars were attached to it. But, you know, one thing that came up in some conversations I had was the Pac-12's history with DirecTV and not being able to get on DirecTV. And at the time, a lot of people in the conference, at least in leadership, I'm sure Larry Scott believed this, thought, well, We'll just, we'll launch this ad campaign. We'll tell people to switch your carriers, call DirecTV, complain, tell them you want the Pac-12 network, tell so them you're well, leaving without the Pac-12 <laughs> network. And it didn't happen. No. There wasn't the passion. Can no. you imagine if if DirecTV didn't carry the SEC network and the roles were reversed? They'd lose the entire South of the United States. Of course. It, of course. They would have had no choice. Of course. So I think that people have a long memory and that there's some thought that, well, you were depending on essentially people being so passionate about being able to watch their teams, they're going to switch carriers and they didn't do that. Are we really going to count on no. how many of them to spend no. 20 bucks or whatever to watch no. Pac-12 football? So I think that was a factor too. Christian Capel on Montlake, you've got to subscribe. USC and UCLA, Christian, have been portrayed in the last 48 hours as being disappointed over the Oregon and Washington following of them to the Big Ten, even for half a share because they wanted to be the only West Coasters we wanted to own the West Coast out of the Big Ten. Do they have any leg to stand on? Do we even know if any promises were made contractually, verbally to USC and UCLA that the Big Ten wouldn't turn around and do this a year later? I mean, we, we don't know the, the the full details. I can't imagine there were any contractual promises considering Kevin Warren, was the, the former Big Ten commissioner, was so gung-ho about further expansion. He had Washington and Oregon on his list. Maybe there was discussion among presidents and the thought that, you know, you could certainly see the logic in USC, especially with regard to Oregon, thinking that they were cutting them off at the knees recruiting wise, right? Hey, we're sick of this program coming down to Southern California and getting all these talented kids who should be going to USC. We're going to go to the Big Ten. We're going to be able to tell all those kids you can only you know, on the West Coast. We're, we're all that matters. Right. You know, right. you want to play in a big time conference. You can only do that in USC on the West Coast. Oregon can't tell you that. Well, Hello again. Here's here come Oregon and Washington. So I can't imagine their pleas. I mean, I I, no. I very much buy the idea that 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 was not something they wanted. Oregon following them in particular. So if I'm Jen Cohen Christian, when it becomes obvious to me that I've got to leave, as heartbroken as I am to leave, I've got to leave. I'm not. Mitch Levy's not doing the deal with the Big Ten until I talk to the ACC or the Big 12, and see if I can leverage them into something better than $30 million a year, a half share of the Big 10. Any information that leads us to believe that there were any conversations between Washington and Oregon and some of those other conferences? I mean, once Colorado left, I wouldn't be surprised if there were conversations with, with every other power league. But you got to remember, I mean, these decisions are made at the presidential level. And Onamari Kause really, and every Pac-12 president, I think, valued their membership in the Pac-12 for academic reasons. That was high on the list, that this is a league of research universities, of um, you know, largely AAU members, the, the, the prestigious AAU that, that schools right. want to be a part of. And right. they want to be in a league with like-minded universities who are also on that list. And so the Big Ten has always been held up as sort of the, you know, that's the, that's the Pac-12 colleague. That's the ground that they see themselves on. Okay. I don't know that Washington 
ever would have been real sold on on pursuing membership in the Big 12 unless it felt like I'm the just Big talking Ten about just for was leverage. Never happen. I'm talking about for leverage, just to have the conversation to see if I could get a better deal from the Big Ten. They took a thirty million dollar cut to go to the Big Ten while everybody else is getting sixty. So they were in a really rough spot because you think about Washington and Oregon as kind of kind of holding the cards, right? They should have all the leverage in that remaining 10-team league with USC and UCLA gone. But when other schools, Colorado and Arizona, yeah. had had yeah. advanced talks with the Big 12, now suddenly it's kind of on them. And and everyone's looking at them as the next domino. Yeah. And Washington and Oregon, the big brands, are looking saying, no, I don't know, we'll see. Washington State, Oregon State, Cal, and Stanford. What's next for them? And I'm hearing that the consensus is that once emotions die down, there will be an Apple Cup in 2024 because Washington State will need that game. Washington will like to have that game. And we might even see that game early in the season as opposed to later in the season. Yeah, I mean, we know Washington wants wants those those rivalries to continue across all their sports. They've said that. They were clear about that even in their, their press release. We'll see what Wazoo's take on that is that, you know, they've got to figure out their conference affiliation. I wouldn't be surprised if I'm sure there's conversations ongoing with the Mountain West. Maybe they can look into the, maybe the big 12 becomes the next super conference and goes out to 18 and snags them or something. I don't, there is no easy solution for Washington state and Oregon Mm -hmm. state. I mean, this is an absolute gut punch for both of them. They've kind of both of them risen up and, and they've, they've overcome the fact that they're, they're two of the, least resource teams in power five they've spent at a really high level investing in facilities and they've won it at, at a higher level in recent years too i mean they've kind of punched above their weight wazoo especially always yeah. has and, you know yeah. mike leach era they put all the poured all these monies into facilities and and took on all this debt and they're they're in all kinds of debt in their athletic department and they're counting on a you know a, a bigger TV deal uh, come this next cycle to pay a lot of that stuff off and now not only is that not coming but wherever they land from here they're going to have even less revenue it's it's sad before we finish up with Christian Capel on Montlake he does a phenomenal job and will do so all husky football season you got to become a subscriber like I did Christian let's talk about when we find out how this is all going to be set up in the new Big Ten in 2024. Do we have any idea when that will be determined? And do we have a best guess on how that's going to go? There'll be what? I guess it could be two divisions of eight where you play the other seven teams in your division and maybe one or two uh, teams a year from the other division. What do you think about all that? I might to assume that Oregon, Washington, USC, UCLA... Those four and then four others will be in the Western division of the Big Ten. So the, they'll all play each other every year. You have any guesses? Well, it's it's tough because the, the Big Ten, I believe, got rid of divisions and already did their 2024 schedule. So got to redo that one out for whoever's yeah. got to figure that out. Now yeah. adding two more to to schedule out 18 teams. Oh, is, it, um, is, it 18, I, is it 18 teams? Yes. Yeah, so it is 18, yeah. Six, I said 60. 18 teams. So two, two divisions of nine? Or are we doing three divisions of six? Are we making yeah. this a little a little like NFC, National Football Conference? Are we going to... I brought up the idea on Twitter that maybe it's unfair with 18 teams to do a two-team championship game when all these teams are never not going to play against one another during the season maybe you have to go to a two-week four-team playoff 
for the Big Ten title. What do you think about some of that stuff? Based on the call with Jen Cohen and Anamari Kause on Saturday, it seems like details are pretty scarce right now. I think a lot of that stuff still has to be ironed out. It's interesting that Big Ten had a, I think they call it a a flex plus plan or something where it's, they they determine protected rivalries, teams that are going to play each other every year, and then... They had a system, I think, where you wind up playing everybody in the league in a two-year span or three-year span. And gosh, I it's it's incredible because you think about, oh man, Big Ten, they're gonna have all these games against Ohio State and Michigan and Penn State and Wisconsin, right. but you're gonna miss half the league every year. Of course. So, and don't you have to, for the students' sake, don't you have to put UCLA, USC, Oregon, Washington in the same division? Shouldn't those three yeah, those three teams be Washington's three opponents before we begin. USC, UCLA, and Oregon every year. If you can protect the Washington State Apple Cup, there's four. And you go from there, something like yeah, that. You, yeah, you would hope that they would make sure the West Coast teams all play each other every year. Yeah. I mean, it seems like it would be kind of silly to go to an 18-team league with three of your Pac-12 colleagues and end up missing, you know, missing one right. or two for, right. for a couple seasons. And what's going to be weird is the Apple Cup being played in September if it gets played yeah. or does Oregon now become that, that final week, regular season finale game for Washington. That'd be a fun little tradition to start, but it's going to be so strange having any apple cup. That's not over Thanksgiving weekend. So when practically speaking, do you think the big 10 has to come to conclusions on these things? Do we wait for the off season somewhere in between the off season, or is that too close to the beginning of 2024 do they need to have some resolution to all this sooner? Logistically, yeah, I mean, wise. I would think that sometime immediately after football season, sometime early, early winter, okay. um, I would think they'd have to have it done. I want to say that's about when the Pac-12 usually announced its following year schedule. But then you, you already know who the pairings are before that. It's just about what week and where the bye weeks are and all those sorts of things. So they're kind of working ahead that way. It's a lot to figure out. I, I really don't think there are a lot of answers to this right now. I mean, this was the, the way that one person put it to me was the, you know, they were they were doing months worth of work over the last few days, you know, trying to get all the details ironed out. And right. it's a process that should have taken a lot longer than it did. But it 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 happened in a short time period because it had to crazy stuff. Your world turned upside down. On Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, he's Christian Capel. He's always been the best locally. Now you find him with his own thing on Montlake.com. Read his writing, and then you've got him and Danny. And I'm going to pitch him off the air. I'm going to pitch him and Danny for a little triumvirate during the during the college football season when we put all of our minds together after college football Washington games. Maybe he'll go for that. Maybe he won't go for that. He's not shaving, so I have a shot. I mean, I have, a, I have an outside shot. Christian Capel, thanks for being back with us on Mitch Unfiltered. All right, thank you. Hey, let's check in with the president of Zeke's Pizza, Mr. Dan Black. Hiya, Dan. How's everything going over there? Doing good, Mitch. How are the eastern spots, the two spots that are furthest away from headquarters, Spokane and Boise, doing? Yeah, you know, it's been interesting. We didn't quite know how difficult that was going to be and how much the brand would be known and stuff. And it's been great. The new location on the outskirts of Boise and Eagle is just going crazy. And we were happy that, you know, there's a lot of people that knew about Zeke's down there and 
you know, there's a lot of people that don't still, and, and we're working on that, but the location's been busy. It's got a great patio. So as summer kicks in there, it's getting even more amped up. Same thing in Spokane. They have a great patio. It got really popular for Gonzaga basketball games mm-hmm. in particular and your favorite basketball <laughs> coach on earth. Um, but you yeah, know, so no, we're, we've been, we've been really happy with the two locations that are, you know, really outside of our core. So, so far so good. I need a summertime beer selection. I understand you've got two new collaborations in your vast library at Zeke's. Yeah, no, we've got two awesome ones this summer and, you know, we've talked about, you know, what we call collabs a lot, which is just a fancy term for saying that we have relationships with most of the great breweries in the Northwest and they often brew beers that are exclusive to us. And we call those collabs. And so when we say collab, it just means that it's a beer that really you can only get at Zeke's and a brewery. One's already going. It's called the Reach Pilsner, and it's got a good backstory. I think I've mentioned that Tom and Doug founded Zeke's because they didn't like working for Arthur Anderson and writing code. And first, they knew that the internet and computers would never be big anyway, so they started <laughs> started a pizza company. But you know, part of the reason they started their own business so they could windsurf at the gorge. And the Reach actually refers to a stretch of the Columbia where they windsurf. And our partner on that is a brewery called. Ferment. The head brewer down there is really great at Pilsners, and we like Pilsners because they're easy drinking. They're low alcohol. Even you could handle a couple of those. And so, uh, so the Reach Pilsners going right now. It's an easy drinking summer beer. And then we're doing a re-rack of the one we did with Fremont Brewing last summer. So in July we'll have another version of the Z Side IPA, which will definitely be too aggressive for you, Mitch. So stay away from that one. <laughs> so yeah, we got the Pilsner going right now. The Reach Pilsner, and then. We got Z-Side coming up in July, and they're both really good. It's quite a selection of beer at Zeke's Pizza. You know Zeke's Pizza for for their great Northwest-style crust and pizza. But, boy, what a beer selection that continues to grow and grow. We love Zeke's Pizza, an incredible partner of Mitch Unfiltered, homegrown in the Northwest. Unfiltered. It's realistic for the Seahawks to have a top five offense this year. And I think it's maybe even realistic for them to be a top three offense this year. And it might be even realistic for the Seahawks to have score the most points that they've ever scored in franchise history. Episode 249, Mitch Unfiltered continues as the first preseason game for the Seahawks approaches this week. I thought we'd shine the light on an alternative way to follow the team this season in addition to mainstream media. Brian Nemhauser has one of the more popular Seahawks blogs, if not the most popular. It's called Hawk Blogger with quite the following, and he joins us for the first time on Mitch Unfiltered. How are you, Brian? I'm doing great, Mitch. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. I'd like you to go back to the beginning, if you don't mind. Who is Brian Nemhauser? When and how did all of this start? And how would you describe, Brian, what you guys do for Seahawks fans and how it's different than what reporters and columnists and sports talk radio hosts do for Seahawks fans? Yeah, well, I could go way back. I mean, definitely. <laughs> I grew up in Portland, Oregon, and became a huge Seahawks fan mainly because of the color of the uniforms, to be honest. The throwbacks, <laughs> <laughs> I was a big fan of green and blue, and and I'm happy to see the throwbacks uh, back in style now. Um, but just played a bunch of sports growing up, obsessed with uh, the Mariners and the Seahawks and the Huskies while I was <laughs> down in Oregon, which is a, yeah. a little different. 
Um, and then I uh, went to school back east uh, in DC, ended up coming back to Seattle to work in tech for a company called Adobe. And the thing is, Mitch, as someone who is sports obsessed, tech wasn't a great place for talking sports. Like I could talk to my uh, <laughs> colleagues about a New York Times article or about something that's happening in tech, but I'd start talking sports and their eyes would glaze over. So I just used to write a season preview for some friends about the Seahawks or about the Mariners. And one of them eventually said, why don't you just do a blog? And this was back in 2007. And I was like, all right. So I decided to start writing a blog. And for the first few years, it was me and probably two people. There was like a soccer mom in Everett and a guy up in Alaska. And it scratched an itch. I was able to talk about the Seahawks in a really obsessed way with a few people. And I, I had a print journalism degree. I failed to mention that. So I, I always wanted to write. And uh, it just it kind of blossomed when I hit Twitter and uh, the Seahawks also started getting better and it just blew up. So it got to a point where I was getting a lot of inbound requests for sponsorships and I had a job. I didn't need, you know, money yeah. from this yeah. and felt kind of wrong or weird. And then I realized I didn't have to keep the money. I was like, well, I could just donate it. So I ended up, my youngest son is autistic. His name's Nate. It turns out that John Schneider and Tracy Schneider's son, Ben, is autistic. Sure. They started Ben's Fund. And so we decided to donate everything from Hawk Blogger to Ben's Fund. And at this point, we've donated over $260,000 to charity through the years. Wow. Been a great experience. I've met pretty much all the players I'd want to meet, interviewed them, written about them, gone on the team plane, no front office people, coaches. It's just, and I've met just tons of people, made tons of friends through the process. And it's interesting. You talk about the mainstream media. This wasn't really, it wasn't a response to, to mainstream media. It was an obsession. I, I Like there was a level I wanted to get to about the Seahawks that just wasn't there in reading press conference cutups. Mike Sando, I think was probably the person who was closest to the type of analysis and in-depth uh, look that I wanted. When he left the Tacoma News Tribune, there was just a void of that kind of just geeky analysis. And so uh, that's what fed my desire to write about it. And other people seem to like it. That's so that's what, what you here. would call a geeky analysis of the Seahawks. Yeah. And so, yeah, now, I mean, and so now how do we follow it? We, we follow you on Twitter. We watch the podcast on YouTube. Are you still writing about the Seahawks? Do you still have the old tech job? Do you do this full time? <laughs> and, and, and I know I'm asking a lot of questions. That's what I do. Was there a moment you said it blew up? Was there a story or a moment or something that you did that went viral, like a defining moment in Hawk Blogger's career or not? I don't know if there was a specific defining moment. There was a, probably a three-year period, and it happened to coincide really with Pete Carroll, 2010 to 2013. At that time, remember, the Seahawks are coming off the Jim Mora era. This was a terrible franchise, had no talent. There was a lot of like not interest in it. And I was obsessed still. And so I was writing and I started seeing what was happening. I think before others did, I started predicting moves that the team was going to make. Yeah. Other people on Twitter were able to retweet these things and I gained some credibility. I see. And then I started writing. Um, I'm fascinated by the people. One of the things I always loved, if I can share some uh, love back in your direction, one of the things I always loved with you keeping me company in the morning on my drive to work for all the years I was here was the way you talked to the people. 
um, you cared about sports, but you cared about the story of the person. And so I started following a, a, a receiver named Chris Carter, uh, who was an undrafted free agent. Same year that Doug Baldwin was an undrafted free agent. Mm -hmm. And I was writing every day. Chris and I got to know each other really well, his family. And I wrote a whole series. And in doing so, I was watching him. And this guy, Doug Baldwin, was just, I was like, this guy's going to kill Chris. <laughs> Sorry, I love Chris, but Doug Baldwin is the real <laughs> yeah, deal. Yeah. So Doug and I got to know each other. Sherman and I got to know each other. I wrote features on them, interviewed them. Um, I would talk to them online. They obviously blew up. Um, I sure. predicted a lot of players that were going to blow up. Um, I predicted the Seahawks getting better before a lot of other people. So I think, and that's, I'm not saying I'm like some amazing person. I think those are some of the things that drove some credibility and, and I just, I wrote a ton. That's great. So answer that first set of questions. Where do we follow you? How do we follow you? You're still doing the tech thing or is this full time for you now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so hawkblogger.com is still the blog uh, and the podcast is Real Hawk Talk and you can find it on any podcasting outlet, Spotify, yep. uh, Apple Play, all that stuff. And then I do still do a tech job. I worked for Adobe for 24 years. I oh. took a year off and, and I, I run a product management for a startup called Propel right now. Um, and so, yeah, I do that full time. And here's the thing. I, I don't write as much as I used to. I used to write all the time. But during the season, every day, every game, you'll see a morning after column from me. You will see season previews from me. You'll see game previews every Wednesday. I have to admit something you might not like, Mitch. I do a tale of the tape. Oh, no. Uh, did I steal it from you? Un unknowingly, no, did I steal it uh, from I, you? I might have stolen it from you. I don't know. But <laughs> but but uh, yeah, so I do that. But but mostly it's the podcast now interacting with folks that way and keeping up with, with uh, ah. what's going on with the Seahawks. Well, let's talk about the Seahawks. Unflinching analysis of all things Seahawks. Brian Nemhauser. What are the big talking points coming out of training camp so far? I see it that we've got now the D. Eskridge suspension and the fallout mm. from that. We've got injuries to the running backs, which was supposed to be a deep position on the chart for the Seahawks. We've got the two first round draft choices seemingly, I don't want to, I don't want to be too harsh, going in opposite directions a little bit. What do you see coming out of training camp so far that interests the Hawk blogger, Brian? That's interesting you say that. I I I think about the two rookies, the first rounders. I'd say the Seahawks had a very real shot of having the offensive and the defensive rookie of the year last year with uh, what is now known as Reek Woolen yes. and, and Kenneth Walker. I think that they have a legitimate shot of doing the same thing this year. You do. I think, I think Devin Witherspoon and uh, JSN, Jackson Smith and Jigba, are going to be transcendent players. Uh, I don't know if there's been any franchise that have had back-to-back -back years with that level of talent um, from two players. And so, yeah, I think I think there's an interesting conversation that I've had with Seahawks fans about Witherspoon. Yes. Where people are like, hey, he's, he's playing a, slot. This right. is a demotion. Right. That's what I want to talk to you about. Right. I, I don't see that at all. It's he hard, is... It's hard spot. That's, that's how you see it. No, I, no, I, no, no, no. I see it as this is a really hard spot and... Who's to say that if he were to win an outside cornerback position, 
that they would be a better team moving Jackson or Kobe Bryant back into that spot. They might be a better football team because those two guys in Jackson in particular is better on the outside and Witherspoon can handle the slot receiver. I don't know. I don't know the answer. That's why I call upon the Hawk blogger to set it straight <laughs> for God's sakes. I think I think you're exactly right. I, I think that, that they're trying to get the best cornerbacks out there. And I think Kobe Bryant is not one of their three best cornerbacks. I, I think that's uh, pretty undebatable. Okay. And so then you get Witherspoon, who is a hard hitter, a run supporter. He has the lateral quickness to keep up with a slot guy, uh, is a playmaker. So he's going to be in the middle of everything. And I don't think this precludes him from playing outside. So I think this could end up being a situation where he goes um, both outside and in. But now, you like you said, you've got a chance to have uh, Mike Jackson on the outside. Trey Brown, I think, is another story that's an underappreciated part of that group. I think he's a better cover corner than Mike Jackson. And there's another thing that's a sneaky story coming out of camp, which is the Seahawks are running a lot of dime. They're running a lot of six DB formations. And what that means is you have two slot corners. And so in that situation, you could end up with Julian Love playing some slot and Kobe Bryant playing safety. You could have the opposite. Uh, Quandre Diggs can play slot. There's there's a really interesting game of chess that the Seahawks can start playing in the secondary when you've got so many interchangeable parts that can play nickel, that can play safety. I think it's going to be harder for quarterbacks to identify what's going on there. Yeah, yeah. And you've got just a ton of talent. So I think that's one of the more interesting parts of camp. Okay. Eskridge was going to be the fourth wide receiver as I see it, and now uh, he's gone for the first six weeks. Let me rephrase that. He was going to be the fourth wide receiver until he got hurt, which probably would have been in game one, and then he wasn't <laughs> going to be the fourth wide receiver anymore. Um, yeah. it, it shines a new light on the pick of Jackson and Jigba because clearly this happened in February, and the team knew where they were headed with Eskridge and a suspension, so it made it more important for them to come out of that draft with a wide receiver, and they did. But now what about the fourth wide receiver spot? A, how important is it for what the Seahawks do? And B, is there a guy on there that we trust, or does John have to work the waiver wire or make a trade in training camp to bring in another wide receiver? I don't know that it matters that much. Okay. Uh, where it becomes uh, an issue is if there's injury to those top three. I think those top three are going to be dominant in terms of targets. I think you have to remember that tight end group has also been pretty productive and can play more. They can go to more multiple tight end sets as they need to. Sure. I think you're going to see multiple running back sets, assuming there's health for Kenneth Walker and Zach Charbonnet and those guys. I don't think it's a critical position. I also... Personally, I'm more interested in some of the uh, uh, undrafted free agents like Matt Landers, 6'4", runs a 4'3". Uh, you've got Jake Bobo out of UCLA. I think those guys, I'm always interested in guys that are new and potentially have more upside. Uh, obviously, Cody Thompson, Kay Johnson, some of those guys that have been on the practice squad for a while are the most obvious to get the chances. I'm just not particularly high on them being an answer to get a lot of snaps. Okay, so Brian Nemhauser, Hawk blogger, is with us on Mitch Unfiltered. Is it fair for me to ask you the consensus on the job that John and Pete did this past offseason? Is it too early? Because the way I look at this is there were a couple of glaring needs to A, rebuild the interior of the defensive line, and with the linebacking injury to Brooks and the overall linebacking play last season, get playmakers at that position. 
And while they addressed both, they didn't spend the higher yield resources, I would call it, the higher end resources on either position, like the top draft choices. They drafted a corner and a wide receiver, the larger free agent money, the trade chips. Instead, they kind of stitched it together like they seem to do at those positions, or at least the defensive line positions. So, Brian, do we find ourselves asking the same questions about interior defensive line and linebacker that we were asking at the end of last season? I think you got to start with, Mitch, it was brutal last year, and it's been brutal watching the Seahawks defense for pretty much a decade. And it's varied. Last year was uh, the run defense, but it's been the secondary that's been the coverage has been awful. Last year was emasculating. I mean, if you're if you're a football fan and you want your team to be tough, it was hard to see that when the Seahawks are getting run over by everybody. So does it disappoint you feeling that way about the team and then watching them take number five and number 15 and not address any of the positions really that made them so inferior the last 10 years. Yes, yes. It, it, it is very hard. And even right now, as excited as I am about the talent that they added, and I think they the return on the investment that they made and the, the wisdom good. of the choices was good. Yes. I think if, they're, if you talk to them in a private room, do they wish that Jalen Carter had passed their test and been the right answer from their perspective? Absolutely. They couldn't in good conscience for whatever reason, he didn't pass that. That would have been huge for this team. The fact that he didn't pass that bar and that basically, I mean, we're talking about Cameron Young being a big deal. They're trying to prop up Jaron Reed as this big savior. Sure. I don't buy it for a second. Like I'm hopeful maybe Cam Young can be good, but man, Mitch, this team is not tougher on the interior yet from my perspective we are really hoping for scheme-based changes better linebacker play from an older bobby wagner the run defense no matter what the analytics people say the run defense could be the undoing of this team if they don't get that right of course so overall feel on the seahawks having said what you just said i i tend to look at these things as We overcomplicate it when the simple questions are in front of our noses. Can they win the division? Wild cards are fine, and they give you a chance and all, but let's face the probabilities in the numbers. The numbers say that the Seahawks, to make a deep run in the NFC, need to win the NFC West. We've known that for a long time. And play a playoff game or two at home. They were painfully behind the San Francisco 49ers. And all of us asked the same question at the end of last season, which is, can they bridge the gap during the offseason? Can the Niners come back to them a little bit? And can they catch up to the Niners to give them a legitimate shot, Brian, to win the NFC West? Would you call, or is it too early to ask, do they have a legitimate shot over 17 games to win the NFC West? Well, let me ask you, Mitch, is 30% a legitimate shot? It's right on the border, Brian. You picked the right number on me. You picked the right number. It's close. It's close. I think that's it's it's roughly around there. It can go, I think it could go higher depending on what happens at the quarterback position for San Francisco. So it's not just about the Seahawks, yes, right? Yeah. And they've had a lot of injuries on their team yeah. over the years. Yeah. And then for the Seahawks, as you know, it's it's how do you feel about Geno Smith and can he take a step forward? A lot of people are saying he could take a step back. Hey, the last year was an aberration. 
I think there's real reason to think he could be better this year. If he does, that's huge. And then, yeah, it, I think the story on offense could be this could be and should be a top five scoring offense. I really believe that to be Is true. Is the offensive line good enough, Brian, for it to That's, be a top five scoring offense? We're going to find out with one position in particular, which is center. And I have to see more of Evan Brown and Olu Olu Timmy before I can tell you that with more confidence. But I like the fact that Evan Brown is weighing 320. That is a guy not like little Joey Hunt that's going to get you know, canned by by whoever's going to push him backwards, right? Right. So I think there's some hope there. I think the defense, until we see them stop the run, I'm going to have a hard time believing. But here's what I think they can be. I think they can be a high-pressure team, create sacks and turnovers. I think the secondary plus the pass rush could be a opportunistic playmaking unit. Pair that with a powerful offense, and yeah, you can make some noise in a really bad NFC. Do you go into the season just disregarding Jamal Adams? Like, not even... Th I find myself not even considering him for a minute. Almost as if, like, he's not on the team. And I'm not doing that consciously. But I'm just operating as if Jamal Adams isn't on the team. What if, the same what, way. What, what if... Dare we dream for a second? What if he comes back at some point, stays healthy, and shows a little of the form that he showed before he got to the Seahawks? Well, I would say Jamal Adams and Jordan Brooks are in that category for me. I'm not, I'm not counting on either of those playing a snap or being oh impactful boy. if they do. Then how about the linebackers? Are they any good, the linebackers? Uh, uh, look, I Devin love Bobby Bush? Wagner. I'm not a Devin Bush believer. I'm going to have oh, to see it there. Oh. But Cody Barton was, I mean, it's addition by subtraction there. Sure, so sure. can't only go up from there. Right. But getting back to your other question about Jamal, I'll go you a step further, Mitch. I would say if he comes back, whose snaps are he, is he taking? And is he making the team better by taking those snaps? I'm not convinced that him playing over Julian Love is going to make this team a better defense. Mm. I'm not convinced mm. that him taking snaps away from who? Maybe Devin Bush? Well, hold on. I got I mean, an idea. You just said they're going to have... They're going to be in dime a lot. They're going to have a lot of defensive backs on the field. Love, from what I understand, is a flexible guy. He could go down and play cornerback. Maybe when they put all of those defensive backs on the field, that there's a combination where Adams, if healthy, makes sense. That's their hope. I think that really every all the talk is they want to put Jamal closer to the line of scrimmage, makes him more of a linebacker. And Love is a you know can play outside corner, inside corner safety, which is fantastic. And he plays them all with discipline. Uh, and so Jamal, what does he do well? He he does uh, play aggressively against the line. He's a good run defender. He can pressure the passer. So all that's good. I just don't know exactly whose snaps he's taking. Devin Bush is the best case I can make. That could be good, but Devin Bush, I don't think is going to be on the field that much in the anyway, first place. So yeah. I'm just not yeah. so sure how Jamal Adams, even if he is healthy and back, is going to impact the season. I'm eager to see it. Great stuff from Brian Nemhauser. If you want to follow along, there's uh, lots of ways to do it. Obviously, they're the Brady Hendersons of the world and the Bob Condotas of the world. And then you got the step down to guys like Brian and then another step down to guys like Mitch. And by the time you finish, you get, you got a whole potpourri of different ways to follow your favorite Seattle Seahawks. He's Hawk blogger, H A W K B L O G G E R. Read them. Listen to them. The podcast as the season closer and closer and closer. Brian, it's great to meet you after all this time. It's great to see your face 
and have you on Mitch Unfiltered. Thank you for doing it. I appreciate it very much. It was great being here, Mitch. Great to see you. It's been a while since we caught up with Jordan Flowers, my main man of the Woodenville office of Cross Country Mortgage. How's everything going in Jordan's world? Hey, Mitch, it's going fantastic. I'm uh, chasing old Mitchie in the <laughs> Manager of the Year Award for Little League Baseball. How many teams you got over there? You know, I was the manager of two, both my 10 and 8-year-old. Uh-huh. And I got to say... Uh, <laughs> I'm going to be giving you a run for your money, Combined man. Combined record? Oh, gosh. We only lost probably six games. Oh, that's six more season. than I lose. I don't lose. Hey, <laughs> hey, hey. All right, let's talk about the market, the buying and selling market. It's not easy these days, but it's still doable, especially for home buyers. Give us your analysis, Jordan. Absolutely. Uh, inventory is still a little tight, but better than it was. But we are winning a lot of offers and using that 2-1 buy-down program we've talked about. Tell me about that program yes so basically what we do is we are negotiating with the sellers getting a price that they want getting a credit towards uh closing costs for our buyers and they use that credit to then temporarily buy down the interest rate for the first two years of the home so we get through this kind of elevated interest rate period with a two percent lower rate than what market is at are people still buying second homes and investment pieces and what do you have to offer those types of clients yeah people are buying in Arizona, California, Eastern Washington, kind of all over. We're helping people buy second homes and investment properties. We've got a couple great options for the investment property buyer, uh, especially uh, using that debt service underwriting ratio that we've talked about in the past where they don't even need to provide tax returns. Really what we look for is qualifying our buyers off of the cash flow of the property. So it's a great program right now for people looking to pick up investment properties at good prices get an income-producing property. Is there a way to have a best guess of what the next six months or a year look like? Does Jordan Flowers have a crystal ball? <laughs> I thought I had a crystal ball, but you know... <laughs> <laughs> Is it Ernie Zampezi story? I'm not going to say when. I'm just going to know it's coming, right? <laughs> like We're going to get through this, and they're coming back down. I think I think we should expect for the rest of this year rates to maintain in the 6% range. Maybe we see them by the end of the year get back down in the fives. But I will say when they do come back into the low sixes to mid fives, it will, again, open up floodgates for buyers and for sellers bringing properties on. So there is pent-up demand. It's sitting there, and it's just we're we're waiting. Well, I've always loved Jordan Flowers and his team at uh, both companies, not Cross Country Mortgage, the Woodenville office, because they're willing to take your phone call and be creative. Think outside the box. And to reach you on a phone that doesn't have a full voicemail, Jordan Flowers? <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, I just got a new phone. Okay. My kids like to tease me that I'm the no upgrader. Okay. I don't upgrade my phone. Okay. I've had the same one for six years. All right. And I've now upgraded, and I'm setting up the voicemails. Everything's going to be Phone number? Here. Same phone number? Give us the number, please. 425-890-2957 is the best one to reach me on. The Woodenville Office of Cross Country Mortgage and J-Flow, Jordan Flowers, without God Guys like him and companies like theirs, where would Mitch Unfiltered be? Cross Country Mortgage. Unfiltered.
Episode 249, Hot Shot Scott, the wildly popular other stuff segment. It is wildly popular. Yeah, I'm making that up. Okay. Greta Gerwig, you know that name? No. She achieved something pretty great in showbiz over the weekend, and you helped contribute to this, I'll have you know. She's now the sole female director to have crossed the billion-dollar line, and it's all because of the Barbie movie. Who is she? The director of the Barbie movie. Yes. Yes, the first woman to ever cross the billion. Oh, I didn't know that. That movie is not slowing down. It's crazy. No, I know. And you walked out of it or fell asleep during it. No, I didn't walk out of it. Whatever you did. I took a little nappy. You took a little snooze. I was in a happy nappy club, but I think I was snoring. Raking in over a billion dollars at the worldwide box office. And once again, taking the top spot. Three weeks Past Oppenheimer. Who? Which one is bigger, Oppenheimer or that one? Oh, I I, I don't know. I think Barbie was first, maybe. I don't know. But they're both Warner Brothers. And they sent out a pretty insensitive meme. I don't know if you saw that. No. It's got Oppenheimer with Barbie on his shoulder talking about it's going to be a great summer if it Warner Brothers and Japan not loving that too much. So, Uh. yeah, someone probably should have thought that through. But anyway. D. Eskridge was not the only one suspended by the NFL on Friday. Okay. Others were like Alvin Kamara. Ever heard of him? Sure. The running back of the Saints. Three games in his role for a fight outside a Las Vegas nightclub in 2022. Alvin Kamara told reporters, quote, I was completely wrong. I embarrassed the Saints. I embarrassed my family. I embarrassed my mom. I embarrassed myself, the city, and the shield. Obviously, I embarrassed the NFL. He took total responsibility. Not something you hear every day from people who get into trouble. I'm not sure why I like this one, but I do. Okay. Somalia, could you? Here's here's a map. There sure is, yeah. Could you find Somalia on here? Um, I'd go to Africa, I think. Yeah, so would I. Close to Saudi Arabia in that in that area or no? I don't see Somalia. Somalia. I'm sure it's on there yeah, somewhere. God, we're stupid. Yeah, we are. We really are. Anyway, Somalia's sports minister oh, needed to publicly apologize on Wednesday. <laughs> yeah. What? What are you laughing at? I know at? this story. It's unbelievable. I don't, <laughs> go ahead. I don't know why I love this story. <laughs> it's funny. He ordered that the chairwoman of the National Track and Field Federation be suspended after a seemingly untrained female sprinter <laughs> represented the African country. Okay, so we should be able to find Somalia. It's in Africa. Yeah, right there. There's Somalia. See, that was close. I said it's near Saudi Arabia. Of, ah, yeah, Central East Coast. Not bad, not bad. Very nice, hot shot. Thank you so much. She took more than 20 seconds to run 100 meters in the World University Games in China. I think I can beat her still. Why the hell do I think this is great? I, I, don't, I, I don't get Minister it. Minister of Youth and Sports, Mohammed Bar Mohammed, <laughs> said his ministry did not know how the 20-year-old Nasra Abakur Ali was selected to compete in the Women's 100 at the Student Games in Chengdu. A video of the agonizingly slow run by Abukar was shared across social media, and Muhammad said that the performance was embarrassing for Somalia. Abukar was immediately left behind by the other runners, and she finished about 10 seconds after the winner. Yeah. Despite being dead last, she did a little skip in the air as she crossed the finish line. <laughs> I don't know why I love this story so much. It is hilarious for oh, some reason. <laughs> when I, I saw it, I thought it was a joke or something. It's it, kind of like the guy who used to prank and get down in, in the in the layup lines of oh, yeah, the All-Star yeah, yeah, game. Yeah. Remember, we talked about him, Barry, yeah, yeah. Diamond or something. Right, Remember? right, yeah. He was legendary for getting himself onto the field at the All-Star game and playing catcher like Dave Winfield. <laughs> There's something about this that yeah. reminds me of that. I don't know what it is. It is funny. Yeah, oh, I don't know. God. I don't really, I have a lot of questions about it, but I don't really. 
I love. I just love it. All right. Turns out it is not. Well, there's a downside to sleeping naked in the jungle. I don't know if you know that or not. There's a downside to that. Where? Somewhere in here? Yes. There's a show called Naked and Afraid. Have you heard of this show? I've heard of the show. I've never seen it. I don't know where it is, but I I, I have heard of the show. So contestants are experiencing ticks. Loving oh. genitals. Uh-oh. The painful lesson unfolded on the upcoming episode. It's called Naked and Afraid Castaways. With one castaway wakes up to find a handful of ticks oh, no. attached to his penis. Not good. You got it. There's video. You got to see the video, of course. Andrew Shade is just waking up when he discovers the unwanted visitors making camp on his dong. Can he, we? He counts them off Jesus. one at a time. <laughs> He's clearly rattled and is understandably freaking out. We could do a few sports stories before we get to that. <laughs> before we get to dongs? On the other stuff segment. Well, just a it's few just, sports stories. It's a lesson for everyone. Don't sleep naked outside in the jungle. I don't plan to, Hotshot okay. Scott. When Broncos defensive end Iomi Uwazarike was hit with an indefinite gambling suspension last month, the NFL didn't really offer any details about what kind of bets he was making. Okay. This is a Broncos defensive end. And now he faces up to two years in prison. Really? According to the criminal complaint. Prison? Listen to this. The defensive end made a total last year of 32 bets on the Broncos over a period of five games in 2022, including one game that he played in. He was also part of the gambling probe because the former Iowa State star is also accused of making two bets on the Cyclones while he was playing for the Cyclones. He placed bets on the first three games of 2022. After that, he took two months off before placing bets on two December games, which came in week 14 against the Chiefs and week 15 against the Cardinals. According to the complaint, are you ready? Yeah. Uwazirike made a total of 801 bets. Jesus Christ. Someone's got a problem. (laughs) This is not the 70s anymore, everybody. This is not the mafia days when... You take duffel bags of cash to every casino or, and you have your friends do it. And there's there's ways to get around it. Everything's tracked now. The IPs. And, Not going to stop so anybody. Stupid. Not going to stop anybody. The greed is just going to keep them going. Do you remember when Rainier Beach High School had a star basketball player by the name of Terrence Williams? Sure, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. They won the state title, I believe, in 2003 with Terrence Williams. Yeah, I remember Terrence Williams. He was like a first-team All-American. Yeah. Could go anywhere he went. Where did he go? I don't remember. Louisville. He played for Rick Pitino. I think okay. they they may have even won the national championship with him uh-huh. on the team. I may be wrong about that. He has been sentenced to 10 years in prison Uh-oh. for defrauding the NBA Health and Welfare Benefit Plan out of more than $5 million. He pleads guilty to conspiracy to commit health care and oh. wire fraud in addition to aggravated identity theft last year. Along with prison time, he will also have to pay more than $3.1 million in restitution and forfeitures. And those jobs in prison don't pay well, so... No, they don't. It's going to take him a while to get that 3.1 paid Rainier Beach off. High School legendary basketball player Terrence Williams is going to jail. Did you say he was sentenced already or he's facing... Yes, he was sentenced. Wow. 10 years. That's... Because he pled guilty already, yeah. That's substantial, yeah. 10 years. Fraudulent medical claims, and he was bringing other NBA players in, and they were, they were pretending to have this medical bill and yeah. that medical bill, and they were recouping these... The money for appointments they didn't even have. Yep, yep. And then he was taking a cut of the action. It was just oh a, my a very, very messy deal. Now, that's a sad one. Here's another one I love. And again, I'll ask you, what do I love about this? Okay. I love this story. This is a non-sports story, so it's right up your alley. 
the video of the American Airlines pilot. Do you have that on your list? No. Scolding passengers during his pre-flight announcements? No. You don't have that? I don't. I missed it somehow. It went viral? Okay, it started to circulate last week. The pilot set some ground rules for his passengers, including what they should expect from their flight attendants and how they should treat each other during the journey. This is just after everybody was getting situated on the flight. Nothing bad had happened. There's nothing happened. He just gets on the PA like you would hear a pilot do, and here's what he said. No rowdy group got on? No, 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 just just starting off. Okay. I I guess maybe his previous trip wasn't a good one. All right. (laughs) Here's what he says. Quote, remember... The flight attendants are here for your safety, says the pilot. After that, they're here to make your flight more enjoyable. They're going to take care of you guys, but you will listen to what they have to say because they represent my will in the cabin, and my will is what matters. He goes on to say, (laughs) now be nice to each other. Be respectful of each other, passengers, and I shouldn't have to say that, but I have to say it every single flight because people don't. And they're selfish and rude, and we won't have it. Wow. He told passengers to store their bags properly and avoid leaning or falling asleep on other people and use the headphones instead of playing your audio out loud on speakers. Lastly, the pilot acknowledged the plight of the people in the middle seats. Quote, he says, and middle seaters, (laughs) I know it stinks to be in the middle. But you now own both armrests. This is my gift to you. <laughs> Welcome on board our flight, everyone. That's amazing. Did the place erupt and clap and applause? Some I would have. Some were pissed off. Some people are outraged that it was so dismissive and condescending. Other people are like you. Yeah, like I, that's me. Yes, I'm clapping. That's exactly what we need, that guy. Every day we see fights He on just came and... right out at everybody before we even get started. Wow, Here are the him. ground rules. <laughs> On American Airlines. I mean, you think back like maybe 40 years ago, if they sh- show a shot of the airport, it's like men in suit and tie. Oh, yeah. Sure. Hats. And people were dressed up to get on a plane. Yeah. And now it's flip flops and sweats and swim shorts. I and- think when I was a kid, I don't mean to date myself, but I think when I was a kid, people dressed up yeah. to go on planes. Right. Yeah. Thanks, Southwest. With their c- cigarettes. <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> In the but the good news is you'll be in the non-smoking section. Yeah. You're not going to smell a thing. <laughs> I love that. That's the good news. Don't worry, we're in the non-smoking. You, by section. the way, as an aside, did you see the video that I forwarded the other? The, I think it was today. The video of the people reacting to the drinking and driving rules, like in the 1980s, from like Alabama. I saw it, but I, I oh god, I, it's so I didn't funny. listen to it. I know. I, oh, you got to. Oh, he was god, like outraged, so, and he couldn't yeah. have a few on the way home. You no, know, I work an 11 hour shift. I can't yeah. have a few beers while I'm driving. <laughs> I know. We've come a long way, haven't we? Oh, you got to watch that video. It is fantastic. I have a great uncle. It'll be the best thing you see. A great uncle in the 80s, like, legitimately said the drinking and driving, he thought you had to pull over to take a drink safer (laughs) and then keep driving. Like, he didn't understand the whole alcohol in the system thing. He thought you had to pull over. No, I don't drink and drive. I pull over. I don't think he was kidding either, by the way. All right. I'm a little Taylor Swifted out like everyone else. Me too. Me too. God, she seems like a great person. She's the nicest of all. She's handing out bonus checks and everything, right? Says she shelled out north of $50 million to the members of the Eras Tour crew. That includes... A hundred thousand dollar bonus per truck driver. God, which itself came out to about five million dollars for just the truck. I mean, imagine being a truck driver and then you get a check for a hundred grand. At the She's end getting of- to the point where 
It's starting to become insufferable that she's so nice. I, I know, and I feel bad for Lori, the receptionist. Nice. Oh yes, <laughs> Lori, the receptionist with the, <laughs> the hot chocolate packets for Christmas. <laughs> no one knows what we're talking about. It's my favorite thing of all time. Uh, she put a little bow on it, hot chocolate packet, and put it in everyone's box. Meanwhile, you can just get it all year round for free. But anyway, uh, there's a lot more dough Was to go around. She's seen New York Vinny for a time. Yeah, <laughs> she was. I think she went out with Vinny. Oh, do you want me to call him and ask him? No, no. <laughs> I don't have his number, but I, I think they dated for a while. Yes, uh, Vinny. I, I think Vinny had like kind of a nice rap. Like I, I think, considering how he looked, you know, he's a bigger fella, a little older. I think he had you game just go with to the, the ladies. Story. I'm sorry I brought it up. I, I've been story. with Vinny in bars. He's not afraid to talk to the women back oh, in the no. day. Oh no, Mr. Personality over there. Oh, no. He dances, does the whole thing. He was on our softball team. <laughs> stop! Just stop! You were there for that. <laughs> Stop. All right. There Boy, was a, he get down the line in a hurry. <laughs> there was a lot more dough to go around, as it turns out. So it looks like the additional. Great at a drag bunt, lay one down, oh. and then just, God, like Willie McGee going down the line. So he hits it like right center or something, right? And gets thrown out of first. Is that what you want to tell everybody? Just go ahead and say it. He got thrown out of first from like right center. Yeah. Poor it was, guy. I think it was seven, six, four, three out of first. <laughs> <laughs> All right, forget it. I'm done. Just go ahead. But she's Come paying on, everyone. $45 million was divided up amongst Sorry. Uh, the, the techs, Sorry. caterers, stagehands, and musicians. She just Sorry. seems like the best person ever. And I hope she just spent $55 million. Off the rails. It is. It's off the rails. I just hope she doesn't, like, you know, the higher you get, the more people want to hate on you. I just right. hope that doesn't happen to her. She is so nice. I know. That's I think thing. it would already have happened. The higher you get. How much higher can she get? Yeah. It's a $1.4 billion tour. She's giving $100,000 checks to truck drivers. I know. Come on. She, uh, She's she, having Kobe Bryant's kid yeah, come up gave to the, her the stand. hat and the whole the thing. Whole thing. I know. She's so fucking nuts. She seems like the greatest person her. of all time. I know. She's like, too nice. Maybe she like tortures maybe puppies. Maybe she needs to date Vinny. Yeah. Oh, boy. He'd love that, wouldn't he? All right. I got a few. All right, Taylor. Let me tell you something. <laughs> Go ahead. Left fielder makes a play. Shortstop <laughs> oh, over to God. second base and on to oh. first just in time. We love Vinny. Uh, I love Vinny. Yep. Former Heisman Trophy winner Johnny Manziel gets on the other stuff segment. I did see that. Reveals that he attempted suicide around the time his NFL career ended. And I don't mean to make jokes, but wasn't the time that his NFL career ended very close to the time that his NFL career started? In the new Netflix documentary, Untold Johnny Football, Manziel said he attempted to end his life soon after the Cleveland Browns released him in 2016. I had planned to do everything I wanted to do at that point in my life, spend as much money as I possibly could, and then plan. My plan was then to take my own life. I wanted to get as bad as humanly possible to where it made sense. Yeah, and he just it wants to be self-destructive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Manziel, whose relationship with his family was strained at this point, also said he used oxycontin the gun just clicked on me is what he says when he tried to shoot himself and uh, just bad stuff yeah. oxycontin and cocaine on a daily basis in 2015 anyway this is the netflix documentary on johnny manzel now the wait is almost over okay everybody in the entertainment world has been waiting for who to do another musical oh gosh come on think about it andrew lloyd weber no come on Come oh, on, you can get this. The Hamilton this. guy. Of course. Yeah. Lynn Manuel Miranda. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody's been waiting. What's going to be next? Yeah. I mean, Hamilton turned out to be the, the biggest Broadway show, in the maybe in the history of Broadway shows. Bigger than Cats? 
Bigger than a chorus line? <laughs> Bigger than Annie? Yeah. He's hard at work at his new stage musical, the next one to come out. Talk about a high bar. I'm a guy yeah. who likes to keep the bar low. I mean, this guy's got no shot. No shot. No shot. His third one will be great. The, uh, the Hamilton's writer's latest is an adaptation of the 1965 novel The Warriors about violent gang battles in New York City okay. during the 60s. Miranda's 43. He hasn't unveiled a new show since... Hamilton premiered downtown at the Public Theater eight years ago and became a worldwide phenomenon. So Lin-Manuel Miranda has a new one coming out. It's called The Warriors. Beyonce is in the news. She makes the other stuff segment. Wow. She she gets on here a lot, doesn't she? We talk Feels about like her a it, lot. Yeah. She's currently embarking, as you know, on her North American leg of her Renaissance tour. She's Queen Bee. Has requested an extremely peculiar item to be added to her tour rider. Oh, boy. The Cuffet Singer, 41, has a personal toilet seat, has oh. personal toilet seats oh. traveling with her on the worldwide trek. A picture of a container which was captured backstage labeled Beyonce Toilet Seats oh. as part of her gear. She travels with her own toilet seats. Somebody's job it yes. is to install it and yes. take the old ones off. Yes. The question is, do they leave it for the next person? To, or does that come off and go with them on tour after she uses it? Is it a one-time? If I were her, I would use it one time and go on to the next. <laughs> Just leave it for the building. Disposable. Hey, we, we got you a new toilet seat. You're going to love it. It's and then I would one. charge the next person who put their ass where my ass was. <laughs> God, people are so weird about germs and stuff. Can't, oh. can't sit on a toilet seat someone else has sat on. I'm here to inform you. Thank now, you. Now, I'm at the RIPs on my list. Do you have anything else on your list before we get to the RIPs? I just, I, or, I, or are you you okay? know I'm obsessed with like the macabre and the weird. and yeah, You know Sharon no. Tate. You've talked about Sharon Tate. This is I'm the murder. obsessed with the yeah, yeah the so, house that I saw on the tour up in yes, Hollywood yes. Hills or something. So her si yes. Sharon Tate's sisters, disgusted by the guy who's yeah. trying to make a buck off of the door to whom where her sibling was butchered, slamming the wholesale as immoral. So somehow this guy got a hold of the door to the house where the Manson family came in. He's auctioning this thing off. Yeah. Christopher Moore and the, auctioning it off to a, an auction house. And she just says this whole thing, this door should be burned. It's not anything she should make a How buck off How about the toilet of. seat? Let's auction off the toilet seat. It's morbid. No one should gawk or marvel at this. My sister was murdered. murdered she was yeah. eight months I pregnant. It, I get it. I get it too. I get it. You remember Psycho? Do you remember how her, her sister came looking for her? I don't remember the story. This seems like the real life. Like this sister's been fighting everything every step of the way with all this crap. She's right. actually kind of cool. But the best part, she says, oh, she's not even sure that that's the real door. She's trying to shit on the sale before it even starts to make sure it's... She's trying to discredit it as, oh as much God. as she can, but... Oh, my oh, gosh. Geez. People love it. Yeah, RIPs. We, right. we, we missed a well, big one. We, we missed it, it but what do you it, mean it happened right after we, we recorded last week. And who was that? I don't know. What, are you talking about Pee Wee Herman? Yeah. Okay, but that wasn't right after we recorded. It was, it was like Monday. Yeah, it was Monday. Yeah, yeah. Let's come back to him because I have a story about him that I want to share, and it's kind of a lengthy one. So let's do the other RIPs. We'll come back to Paul Rubens, who played the role of Pee Wee Herman. Do you have anybody else? I got one more. This isn't I've got mean a couple much. more. This won't mean much to you, but it will to a lot of people. I know who you're going to say. Mark Margolis? Yeah. I know, when I saw that, I don't watch that show, but I've seen him in a million things. You know him when you see him. For he's sure. Played, he's played a billion. He's a great character. was a great character actor. You should see him in this role. Of Breaking I mean, Bad? Oh See, I don't my. watch Breaking Bad. Well, and then know. Better Call Saul, which was the prequel. Okay. He was in both yeah. of them. Yeah, 83 years old. Yeah, so he's he's T.O. Hector Salamanca, true badass. Um, Breaking Bad fans will know him as the guy. He's in the wheelchair, 
and he's wheelchair bound and he's a drug lord, but he can only use a bell and one finger to communicate. Yeah. And it's just when you hear the bell ring and it's it, it, he was up for an Emmy for this. It's that good. Um, by the way, he was also in a show called Your Honor with Brian Cranston. Oh, I reuniting with Brian Cranston on I another have, show. I haven't seen him yet. And so, anyway, but I know his look. He's always oh, he's always a, a mean guy. He's always a, because a he, bad guy. Yeah, yeah, he looks he looks like a mean guy. He's up to no good. Yeah, I mean, I see him on the street. He's up to no good. It's it's haunting his character in Breaking Bad. Clifton so good. Oliver, forty seven years old, who starred in the Broadway show The Lion King. Oh, he was Simba. Of the Lion King, 47 years wow. old. His sister Roxy Hall said the cause of death is unknown. Um, he had been in hospice for six weeks before his death. At 47. So he's always 47. Clifton Oliver, Jeez. who starred as Simba in The Lion King and as Benny in The Heights. I don't know what The mm. Heights is. Has died at the age of 47. So now let's go back to Paul Rubens. I couldn't believe, first of all, that he was 70. I we, guess because of Pee Wee and everything. Well, yeah. You never thought of him as going old, growing old. He, was yeah, he didn't have old. to. He's like Slash or Snoop Dogg or any of these people. They're just characters, right? Apparently, he was sick for a long time and didn't disclose it to anybody outside of his family and friends. They posted something from him after his death, which was kind of weird. Yeah. Please accept my apology for not going public for what I've been facing the last six years. I have always felt a huge amount of love and respect for my friends, fans, and supporters. I have loved you all so much and enjoyed making art for you. I guess he had written that and they oh, posted so it after, after his death. Paul Rubens, Pee Wee Herman, 70 years old. Kind of a complicated one at all for you at all? No, just a, a brilliant guy. There were a couple of arrests. Yeah, one one allegation was very troubling, although he never was convicted of anything, and they dropped the charges. Yeah, the other one was the theater. The other one was the theater. Yeah. A brilliant guy for coming up with what he came up with. We all laughed like hell. He made 14 appearances on The Gong Show. He was just a funny guy. He was on Letterman all the time in character. Sounds like people in the industry loved him. Yeah. Seemed like forgave he, him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so after that arrest with the movie theater thing. In Sarasota, Florida. His first public appearance was, I think, with the MTV Music Awards. Yeah. And he comes out to just to stand. People are going crazy. Right. The first, do you remember when he said when he came out? No, no. Heard any good jokes lately? Because <laughs> the Pee Wee Herman jokes were going all over the place, right? And he just leaned into it and he seemed yeah. like committed to that character. And I don't know. I, I'm a fan. I know he wasn't a perfect I human, was a fan. I was a big fan. I, I can watch Pee Wee's Big Adventure yeah. every day. I love it. There was the brilliance of Pee Wee Herman. There was the very private angle of Pee Wee Herman, of Paul Rubens. Yeah. There were the arrests, or at least one arrest, and then that other thing that kind of swirled and was uh, untidy until it, it disappeared. And then there was this that I, I, I just, I, I sent this to you so that you could read it before I read it on the show. You did? About this, a random guy who tweeted oh, something. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember Tweeted now. a yeah, story yeah. about Pee Wee Herman, about gotcha. Paul Rubens. I, I want to read this. It was great. I just want to read this. This is just a normal, some strange guy who decided, hey, I'm going to tweet my story about Paul Rubens and people can take it and do what they want. And it's gone a little bit viral. This is guy's name is Mario Alejandro. In 2013, I was going through a nasty divorce, he writes, in a bitter custody battle. My ex-wife took our home and I had to move to a motel temporarily. To make matters worse, she wouldn't let me see our daughter except once a weekend in exchange for child support during those weekends i spent every waking minute 
taking my daughter all over Sarasota, never knowing when I'd be able to see her again. At night, we'd binge on Pee Wee Herman for months until she became the world's youngest Pee Wee Herman fan. In 2014, with the divorce now behind me, and now having full custody of my daughter, I emailed Paul Rubens on Facebook, of all things, to thank him for making my childhood so much fun and for helping my daughter and I through those very hard times. Shockingly, he responded with an inspirational message and asked me for my phone number. Honestly, I was terrified, but I gave it to him. The next day, Paul Rubens called. We talked for 10 minutes about the divorce, the job, my daughter, and of course, his amazing work. He asked me to save his number and call him the next month as he was going out of town for a few weeks. A month later, I gave him a call. And amazingly, Paul Rubens (laughs) invited us to his mother's home in Sarasota. He met my daughter, who was only three, showed us props from his shows and movies, and even fed us juice and snacks by his private lake where my daughter chased ducks. We didn't want to overstay our welcome, so we left within the hour. But I will never forget the day that my daughter and I got to hang out with the person who showed us just how fun even the most mundane activities could be with a little imagination. Thank you, Paul. Now, that was written. Now, maybe that's not true. Maybe this guy's a professional writer, and that's all a bullshit story. But if that story is true, talk about the humanity of a guy that none of us got to know anything about. That is about as nice and sweet a story as you'll ever read about anybody. And they've been coming out from celebrities, too, that he just doesn't forget people's birthdays. Always He's, sent a meme to everybody oh, yeah. on their birthday. Just Craziness. Always, yeah. Yeah. I don't just know. seem like a, a great guy. I know he oh, wasn't God. perfect and Not had his perfect. troubles, but oh. can, can I give you just a few lines from one of my favorite scenes from uh, from Pee Wee's Big Adventure? <laughs> sure. Okay. I'm, I'm going to be Francis and Pee Wee. Okay. Do you remember Francis? Yeah, I remember the Francis. big fat, fat kid. kid. Yeah. Today's my birthday and my father says I can have anything I want. Good for you and your father. So guess what I want? A new brain? No, your bike. Remember Pee Wee laps yeah. on the ground? Yeah. What's so funny, Pee Wee? It's not for sale, Francis. God, you do a good Pee Wee. Well, thank you. My father says everything's negotiable, Pee Wee. <laughs> oh, I love that. I remember that. A new brain? <laughs> why that kills me every time. A new brain? <laughs> so great. <laughs> oh, good for God. you and your father. Oh, God, <laughs> you do a good one. Well, thank you so much. I my, didn't know my, how my, long have you been working on that My one? Francis needs work, but, you know. Oh, anyway, I, I love I that movie. That I've watched it a million great. times. I have, too. When he, when he makes breakfast in the morning oh, and yeah. the, just the whole routine. So. <laughs> oh, my God. God, it's Hello, Mr. T-Cereal. <laughs> Remember, he tapes his face. I don't know. It's not for everybody. It's probably silly to a lot of people. I think it's stupid, but I... I love that movie. Go back and watch him on Letterman. Letterman was one of the early ones who kind of got it, like how funny he is and how committed he is. Did he come out in his... Oh, he was Pee Wee. Yeah. He wasn't Paul Rubens. No. No, he was Pee Wee. He and Conan O'Brien had like a relationship. Did you know that? Oh, did they? No. Yeah. Paul Rubens, Conan O'Brien had... And he came out a few times Hmm. as Paul Rubens on the Conan O'Brien talk show. So I saw that. I was watching an old Cheech and Chong movie and he showed up in that. He was the, the front desk worker. And he, it was kind of, he sounded like Pee Wee, but it was like 1974, whenever that came out. God, it's so funny that you did that scene, because I remember that scene. I haven't seen the movie in forever, yeah. but that scene is very... I, don't, uh, I love it. It's not for sale, uh, Francis. You can buy like shirts and say that. It's so funny for some reason. Say that again. It's not for sale, Francis. <laughs> I just love it. I love oh, that movie. Oh, God. So damn good. Uh, okay, it? headlines. All right. 
Researchers found that COVID infections were more common among those who picked their noses compared to those who didn't. Still no scientific conclusion for those who pick and also eat their boogers. A large creature with a blue groin was discovered as... A large... A large creature with a blue groin... Yes. ...was discovered as a new species in the forest of Indonesia. A large creature with a blue groin was also used to describe me after a night at the strip club. And finally, a 7-Eleven employee took matters into his own hands, and he beat a would-be robber with a stick. Mm. Not a wooden stick, but one of those hot dogs on those rollers no one ever buys. You picture what I'm talking about on those rollers? God, those meat sticks and God knows how long they've been there. No one ever buys those, do they? So this week... Are you okay? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. So this weekend, or this week, preseason game number one. It's football season. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) The Seattle Seahawks against the Minnesota Vikings. Ahmad Rashad, Chuck Foreman, right there. (laughs) Tommy Kramer. (laughs) Tommy Kramer. Remember Tommy of course. Kramer? Yeah, you're right. Oh, God. Fran Tockington. He's right going up. the wrong way. Jim Marshall oh. is going the wrong way with the ball. <laughs> Remember, he ran the wrong he way. Ran the, the wrong way. way. Rang the wrong way. Yep. The Vikings and the Seahawks. And where is this taking place? Tom? Right here at Lumen Field, ladies and gentlemen. In the Northwest. Right, right where the Swifties all got together and cheered her on. Yeah, there's still right sparkle there. on the sparkles sure on the field is. and necklaces and bracelets. Sure is. Yeah. yeah. Should be fun. Football season already. And with that, episode 249, ladies and gentlemen, in the books.